right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Readiness Report with myself, Aaron Singerman, and Eric Hart, the president of Red Cow One. Silky Tube. Silky Tube. Silky Tube. He prefers to go by Silky Tube. It's trademarked now. It is trademarked. <laughs> it tra- it's, uh, it's our IP. It's our IP at Red Cow One. Before we even get going on, I just want everybody to notice the new uh, Texas Lone Star State Red Con One shirt that goes with the, the Red Con One Total War. Yep, Texas T. So it's almost kind of like an Arnold Palmer, really. Yeah, Arnold Palmer. People have been asking. And then Eric is wearing the hoodie, which is going to be available right at midnight, right? Midnight? The hoodie, 8 p.m. Oh, right now, right now. So right now, uh, when you spend uh, $50 on the site, there's a whole deal. When you go check out the site, you'll see there's a whole deal on the site. And one of the things you get, for fifty bucks, you get the Patriot hoodie here. I, I love this thing. Other, yeah. other than We're sweating, sweating, but uh, yeah, look, I, you have to take one for the team here on the show. So that's uh, for wearing leisure suits after the There show. you go. We need to dress up a little bit for the show. I feel like right. We wear suits sometimes. Suit and tie. Maybe next next we'll work for us. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> that, that would be that would be the big surprise. So <laughs> Stand we'll up at the end and be like, "Hey, yeah, there you go." So um, we're going to get right into it because we have a few people on the show tonight uh, waiting in the background. And so uh, I just want to remind everybody before we even get going, you can ask questions right now at any point in time during the show, and we may not get to them right away, but they're on the side. I I can see all the questions coming in. So when you ask questions, we'll ask them later for uh, Jack Carr, our our guest of the week. And so if you have questions, or even if it's for myself and Eric, uh, John will pop up on the screen later on during a designated time towards the end, and uh, we'll do our best to get to every one of you guys, especially if you have a good question. So make sure to ask those throughout the show. Don't wait to be answered. And if uh, if you have a really good one, you can ask more than once. No big deal, right? And uh, Ryan Monahan, our chief marketing officer, is back in the back over there. And he is going to be answering your questions if he can. Uh, if they don't apply to the show, he'll be answering them in the background during the uh, the live chat, whether you're on Facebook YouTube or anywhere else. And now, we've got a special in-house intern tonight. Yes, we do. Bruce from the gym, general manager of the gym is here. We have a little bit of an audience. AKA Sling Blade. Yes, Sling Blade from his hair from his haircut. Um, so uh mm-hmm. I like them French fried taters. <laughs> so he's here in the background and uh and if you haven't got seen yet, the Red Cullen gym is back open. And it is cranking. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's awesome. We're social distancing. Don't worry, but there is a, there is a lot of people. Yeah, Bruce Watcher off the six foot eight man. Yeah, pushing people apart. And, you know. um, so, guys, a lot is going on in the country right now. The country is pretty crazy. I mean, in my forty years on this earth, I have yet to see anything uh, like this before. And you know, what's funny is I would have said the same thing a few weeks ago with the coronavirus. Hundred percent, we were. We talked. Yeah, we were. We're, ta- we're talking about it, and now you know whether it's <laughs> whether it's the coronavirus are now riots all over the place and people destroying property and stealing and everything else. So it's really, it's been one piece of bad news to another piece of bad news, basically, right? Yeah, it's interesting on uh, narrative in the news. Yes, uh, it is. But funny, when was the last time you heard about coronavirus? No, nobody cares about that anymore. That's old news. <laughs> what, what? Corona, what? <laughs> I'll have a corona, hell yeah. Uh, no, that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. It's interesting where uh, things, it's one minute. You know, we always talk about me and you, we're not on the show since this is episode three, but we talk about how fast the news cycle is. Very fast. The news cycle is so, so fucking fast now. It's 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 advanced to a level where it's like, before you know it, you don't don't focus on it too long because there's something else coming along the way. And I think people forget too, um, the news is a business. It is a business. And you know, that's, media is a business. A lot of times, people watch and they think it is everything that they see is 100% factual. Right. It's but you know. It is a business, and yeah. it's, you're being shown what 
that particular outlet wants you to see. So yeah, look, ultimately they're selling ads, right? They're selling ads and they're selling, uh, they're getting eyes on it. And you know, everybody knows about clickbait now, right? Clickbait is clickbait title, clickbait, whatever, you know, uh, that gets people to look. And ultimately that's kind of what it's about. And so we have different media outlets with different agendas. They're all, you know, I look, I uh, read every morning, I read uh, foxnews.com and I read cnn.com and it can be the same thing, literally the same story, told in a whole different direction where literally one says good the other one says bad and it's the exact same shit it's, it's crazy to see that we have such conflicting news outlets because when i was a kid walter cronkite when he told you it's the news and that's it you believed it because that's what he says and why would he say anything otherwise now there's a lot going on yeah we're always telling each other stories you're like all right look at this version look at this look at this i, I told uh, jack and he spoke today before the show and i told him it's almost like there's two competing forces in the world now uh, depending on your view of good and evil or whatever, right? Or, or evil and good. Um, but there's two competing forces. One is pushing the economies back to normal. Everything's okay. The stock market is, is going up, up, up. And other forces causing discord, drama, and, uh, and I mean, disruption, chaos, right? And they're fighting to, to see who's going to win. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, you have the tragic event of George Lloyd losing his life. And, you know, and I personally, like my point of view is, you know, that's getting kind of pushed where you're not really, where it's maybe a chance to make positive change, those opposing forces right yeah. now are, you know, trying to take control of what's being heard in that. hundred percent. So one of the things that I saw in the news that, that was really uh, amazing and interesting and, and a lot of people caught a lot of people's attention is our friend Shooter, who's going to be on the show in just a minute. So um, let me show you guys, or Johnny's going to pull up right now, what exactly we're even talking about. You've probably seen it. You didn't even know. So here it is. So, um, He's running up on a guy. I'm not, I don't want to ruin it for him because I want, I'd rather hear it from his perspective and uh, what happens here. And this is in, obviously in the middle of a, a looting slash riot or whatever. And uh, you know what, uh, Johnny, let's, why don't we go uh, to Shooter himself to hear it from, from his perspective right after you're about to see, he's going to get the, he's captured the, got the AR from the guy and, uh, and he's uh, popping the clip out and, yeah. So I rather I rather hear it from him, Johnny. Let's pull pull him up and uh, talk to him. Sure. Welcome to the show, brother. How you doing, sir? Good. Good. I just just to let people know, Shooter is not a, a Shooter McGavin from uh, Happy Gilmore. That's his. Yeah, I know you're upset. He uh, he is uh, at this point still involved in all this stuff and wants to take some time before he comes out in public and talks about who he is and what he's doing and everything else. And so we're giving him the respect of, of calling him shooter. And, um, you know, so tell us what happened. How did you, how did you get in this situation and what, what did you see? Um, as for getting in the situation, I mean, I was put there for my, for work, for my job to uh, protect the news crew. And, uh, what I saw was a lot of things that I wish we didn't see in our country. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the events that preceded what we just saw, the news clip. So take us back to that moment. You're protecting the news crew. How'd you get from there to doing what we just saw you do, grabbing that from the guy? Um, that's a little bit of a long and detailed tale. That's actually the second rifle I snatched from someone. Uh, as you can see in that video, the first one is on my right shoulder. Um, so to get from there 
to there, I'd have to tell you about the other. Uh, I was there on a, if you look back to my left corner, which you can't see on the block, that's where my news crew was. That's where they were trying to shoot and get some footage and film and everything. And, um, you know, once that first shooter produced a rifle, everything changed. And uh, that situation led me to that clip where you saw me taking uh, that firearm from that uh, rider. So, um, how did that guy get the, the, the rifle in the first place from that police vehicle you see right back behind me, he and others, as you can tell, it took many people to get into that vehicle and do what they did. They destroyed it, smashed through it and pulled a rifle bag. And, uh, that's where they pulled the rifle from There's the bag on the ground right below the vehicle. You can see a little glimpse of it. If you look underneath the car and, uh, did it look like they were trying to intend to use it or just take the weapon or because i'm assuming they probably didn't know how to use the charging handle on it <laughs> um to give a little context quite a few years of firearms experience and uh especially what really helped is firearms destruction to see people um and how they handle a firearm you can really get to tell if they know what they're doing or not he did not and as for what they intended to do with it that's you know that's completely completely deduced on my own opinion and situational awareness, but they had escalated everything they've done from, you know, that moment on. So I could only take it one other place. Now they had stolen a police firearm. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, your, your background, I know we talked earlier uh, yesterday, you're, you never intended, you never thought you'd be in a situation like this and you're not somebody who is uh, previously seeking media attention how has all this uh, affected you um, being kind of put in the spotlight? Um, to be honest, it's uh, a more it's a little double edged, and uh, one edge edge of that is a little a little sharp, and the other is a little dull. Um, I'm a very introverted person, introverted person by nature, so all the attention is like incredibly overwhelming. However, the last Wednesday, you know, now a uh, little over a week ago, I had met up with a close friend of mine. Um, who owns a company to get some guidance on how to start my own. And that's what I was working on. And then this happened and then it blew up. So timing and opportunity dictates that I take advantage, you know, and uh, run with it and see what I can do. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you, uh, you have no choice. You've got, you definitely have an opportunity now and people are interested. And a lot of people, I mean, when I post the video and right kind of post the video, a lot of people were, were saying, you know, you're a hero for what you did. And how do you, how do you, how do you take that? No, no, I don't think I'm a hero at all. Uh, not even a little bit. And I keep going back to it because we've all heard, we've all heard that for, you know, I would say generations, but especially in the last 20 years with everything our country's been through that we have all these heroes and we absolutely do. But when it comes to you, it's like, no, you're not a hero. Um, so I've been diving into the weeds with that. So why don't I, what does that even feel like? And I have no idea. I feel like you should know what that feels like um, if you are one or if you claim to be. But uh, me, I just, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time because it was my job and I had made, a decision to pick that job for a reason so uh, you know i did a lot of work up until that point all even up into the drive there i got in a mindset that i felt was applicable to the situation so that's what i ran with 
So you're in a, you're in Seattle. Um, we've everybody who's probably watching this has seen the news and, and the, the stuff from all over the country. The question that I have, and the question that I think a lot of people have, is you being there, boots on the ground, seeing it firsthand. Have you felt like this is a, a, an organic thing, where people just happen to be doing this by chance, or do you feel like there's some level of organization in what you've seen so far? I like to think, you know, many things like we all do, but I don't like to comment on something unless I really know. But uh, I think it is easy to see that there is a little bit of both, but to jump to conclusions, and I mean this for everybody on either side or together, whatever is what causes the problems and an education not an education, but education into, you know, correct fact and what's going on is what's needed. I think there were a lot of people out there that day that were out there to cause harm and escalate things. And whether it was organized or not, I don't feel like I am in a position to, uh, you know, put a judgment or thought on. But what I do know what I saw is I saw a lot of people all in black with the black man bandits covering your face and they were a majority of the ones causing the problems. Hmm. Um, so shooter, where can people find you? If they want to follow you, they want to see what the next business is and what you're going to do next. How can they find you? Um, I have, uh, my Instagram is underscore shooter underscore Rugi R U G H I underscore. And then, uh, there's also, I actually have one more that I've been trying to build. That's, uh, for, if I may, um, Military, law enforcement, veteran, first responder, and that's Firewatch official. Uh, it's user content, so you know, what's that one in your story? It's uh, it's some that stems. So me and a lot of my buddies got out of the Marine Corps, and you know, we were of a generation of the Marine Corps that didn't go see uh, combat or anything, but we started realizing that we were still having issues as we got out, and it was uh, that lack of community, or as Sebastian Unger says, that lack of tribe, and so I thought of Firewatch, you know, the military is all familiar with Firewatch as a way of, uh, you know, watching our fires within, and by putting out good, positive content and being there for each other, but it's been something that's been on the back burner. Um, I'm hoping it'll take off now with timing and opportunity, you know, again, so Use your content, send in what you have, and we will do with it completely anonymous unless you want to be, you know, tagged or notified in it, and we'll put it up. Awesome. Well, Shooter, thank you so much for being on. I know you haven't done much media thus far. I have a feeling like a lot, a lot more for you in the future. So, you know, it's a privilege to have you on here uh, with us uh, for your first major, you know, anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate it. And you mind, uh, again, timing opportunity for this business and COVID's hit us all. It's hit us pretty hard. We're uh, we're trying to start a business because I feel like it's the only place we can go now. Um, my wife, who's now, you know, setting up everything for us, she just started a GoFundMe to yeah. try to help us out for that business. And yeah, but uh, if you can find it, I'll. Make sure I'll send you guys a link if that's all right. Yeah, that'd be great. Absolutely. Our pleasure, man. 100%. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on, and we'll talk soon. And send me that link. I will, sir. And thank you for the opportunity. And I, I, hope, uh, I hope Americans can work to be Americans together. Yeah.
course. Thank you. Agreed. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, moving on to something, uh, some other stuff going on. I guess this is really honestly, this is the good good news. Uh, we do a compliment sandwich today. Compliment sandwich. Yeah. What if it's just be bad? Yeah, bad yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what's coming out with that, right? So um, SpaceX. SpaceX. I have to give. You know, I told everybody last week. I wasn't a fan of Elon Musk before. No, I just wasn't. And uh, and I and I am now. And I am. I honestly am. I bought a Tesla. It hasn't arrived yet, but I bought a Tesla as a result of things he's done and things he said. And I love that he said, uh, you know, opened up his his manufacturing in California. And he said, listen, if you're going to arrest anybody, come arrest me. And that's all he asked. And uh, and obviously the government uh, in California, the, the governor, et cetera, mayor, uh, kind of caved, right? Well, listen, it's... it's tax revenue for them which I think they that he's one of the so, biggest employers in california i think yeah it's gotta yes. be so kind of short-sighted to close them up yeah so the good news is that uh spacex actually was successful so last week we thought they were going to be launching it got pushed back due to weather and it ended up becoming being very successful the, the launch went off without a hitch and they were able to actually link up with the uh space uh station uh, up there in space in the orbit and uh, it took like 19 hours to get actually because of the the orbit and actually meeting up because they're actually traveling at 17,000 miles an hour when they link up and it's, I mean, it's millimeters, yeah. right. To actually connect the space station to, um, their, their capsule. Basically. Yeah. Your margin of error is, I mean, cause again, you're in space and it's minimal. So you don't think how amazing that is. Right. So you launch this experimental rocket. Yeah. They've done all the testing, but right. still two guys strap themselves into a rocket and go, well, let's hope for the fucking best, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and people in the past have done that too, but I mean, it's, you know, obviously they had to test like, you know, all the safety mechanisms before, but you know, weather was bad. I mean, anything could have went wrong. Yeah. I mean, this was private, even though it was overseen by the government. I mean, it yeah. was still a private. Well, mission. they canceled. I couldn't believe they canceled it before due to bad weather, because what they were saying is just some a tiny, 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 tiny little uh, deviation from their plan could throw everything completely yep. off. And then and that's kind guys. of nerve wracking. Yeah, imagine that, like drifting off into space at 17,000 miles an hour. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, the feat of it is, is absolutely amazing. And, you know, with all the craziness going on in the world, it's nice to see something positive and like potential new front, you know, again, space yeah. was the final frontier, but maybe this is just another new, like what's the beginning of the next frontier. For yeah. Us. Johnny, show the launch. So um, for for these for these guys, they they I mean they first off they took a huge risk. Elon Musk took a huge risk to to do this because if it wouldn't have worked, who the hell knows? If there had been a problem or anything, if anybody would have probably would have been the end of Tesla as a company because people have been like, this guy's a yeah wow. yeah. So imagine if hypothetically, and thank God this didn't happen. Imagine if that would have exploded. Would have been it. Had been it. Maybe done. You know, when I was a kid, obviously that happened for Challenger. Challenger. When I was a kid, and and that happened. If that would have happened for Elon Musk, that'd be it. He'd be done. Especially, Tesla'd be done. The whole thing would be done. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure for him it was. You imagine everything he had riding on that. Oh, every he had everything. He had everything riding on it, and so he was able to be successful. Get this space launch off and get it uh, into space, and then the rocket came back. And the, it's cool because the rocket flips backwards and then lands. Slowly on the on their ship on the uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's like a landing pad. Dragon barge. The barge, yeah, yeah, it's a barge. So that is uh, amazing in and of itself. That's reusable. And then the thing that me and Eric were watching that was so cool was that um, they're already like now after this they're already allowing people to pay for space travel. So yeah. it's available like you right can now. Actually, go on the site and book your trip. Yeah, you could meet. We went and looked. So right now it's it's a million bucks to leave in December of this year. 
on a trip in a capsule up there to space. Johnny, pack your bags. Here's Johnny. Johnny's going with Ray. They're going to video this thing. It's going to be great. Hopefully, if not, we'll need some new video now. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was. It's look honestly. So me and Eric were talking about it. At what point would you be willing? Would you be willing to take the chance to fly up on SpaceX to go to the space station or just to go to the orbit? So, what, what's your answer for that? You know, I'm infinitely cheap. Yes, um, it's a million bucks, by the way. Minimum so a million bucks. Depending on how big of a discount, I may go earlier. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you'd have to. I don't know. It's probably got to have at least like a hundred trips in before I'm probably yeah. going. Okay, you got all the kinks worked out. Like you know, you yeah. got a shit-proof spacesuit. So I, you know, okay, so I guess. <laughs> well, they definitely shit in their spacesuits. They're <laughs> 19 hours. More than likely, they certainly pissed. Almost <laughs> certainly shit in their spacesuits. So. so I mean, I can't, but you can't smell it because it's probably like you know. Probably good if you couldn't. If you need your next gen, it's like, oh no, sorry, Eric. I need to share my spacesuit. <laughs> well, you know, it's a risk you take, but yeah, yeah. yeah depending on how big of a discount I may go earlier, but uh, I would do it. I still, again, because who knows in your lifetime where, yeah, where life things are going to go, and you might not wake up tomorrow. So, well, look, there the, the last space you know trip to the moon was in the in the 50s so it's like the 50s or 60s no 60s sorry you're right 60s the first one was 50s 60s is the last time so who the hell knows when anybody will have a chance to do any of this shit again anything could change at any moment so yeah i mean for me i think you're probably right about right i think i have three little little boys so it would be very difficult to be uh, a risk taker and say like hey i'm i don't care i'm gonna i'm gonna throw I'm gonna caution to number two. yeah i'm going on flight <laughs> number two it worked once i'm going <laughs> But uh, yeah, if there was if there was a hundred trips that were successful, I'd probably risk it. I don't know about the million bucks at this point, but you know, you never know. And by trip number hundred, maybe I don't know. I mean, like me and you went to uh, we should have sent this to Johnny for the for clips, but for we went to the uh, zero gravity where we went on the uh, plane up and down, and went to experience zero gravity over and over again. Which we talk about doing again because it's so much fun. Yeah, we're gonna do it with the boys, our, our children, our older children. So yeah, literally the the, the plane goes like this. And when it goes like this, you have zero gravity for about like what thirty seconds, thirty four so. seconds. Yeah. yeah, it was really fun. Flip, flip. You literally spinning. just come off yeah. the ground. Yeah, I would do it. All right, let's go to the next story. So, uh, Twitter adds a warning label fact check for Trump's false voting claims, or it was really more like him. I think I think the false voting. I think it was really for the um, for inciting violence was the last thing. That Is that what it was? Blocked. I think there's several things, and I think maybe one of them was. The voting claims, and there's another thing for inciting violence over the whole thing. So my big thing on all this, all the social media stuff with um, with Trump or anybody, is that should these media platforms be the arbiter of the truth or not the truth, right? Should they be the ones who make decision if it's free speech or not free speech? Or is somebody trying to pr- provide disinformation or just provide their view of the information? In, in my opinion, is no. Like that's not their job. Because, like we said before, they're they're a business ultimately. They're so, business. You know, why are they the one determining what's constitutional or not? And they have an agenda too, because they have uh, opinions. And if you have opinions, you and, and you're going to be the arbiter of truth. You need to remove your opinions altogether. And so, because they these people have an agenda, and the, the guy who at Twitter, I looked this up, uh, was a uh, it's got Yossi something or another. I forget his last Yossi Roth. So. He's the guy who's making the decisions. He's in charge of these decisions, and he runs that part of the company. And he has made many comments about tangerine Nazi and stuff like that about Trump. So it's like you, you're you're you have a bias, and uh, and I think that if these social media platforms, they need to just stay the fuck out of it, honestly. Well, yeah, that's the thing is you provide the platform, and you should have no opinion. Obviously, if someone's doing something illegal or they're not a news outlet, so if you if you do do that once, 
then you have to do it all the time. Right. That's, that's the what problem. They should just they're just providing a platform yeah. for people to have an opinion. Right. Yeah. And like say, I agree. They they shouldn't whether you like them or not, that's like, that's not the argument, is it's of should they be the one dictating it? Yeah, because if you do it once, so a news outlet, let's say it's um whatever. Uh, let's say it's Fox News or CNN or whatever. They have a responsibility to report accurate facts. Right. That's what their job is, and they should fact check and all that stuff. Well, if you're doing that for one thing in your uh, platform, you have to do it for everything. Yeah, you can't, you can't pick and choose based no. on how you want to spin it. No, and, and that's not what they're set up to do. And I can't imagine if Twitter had to fact check every tweet what that would look like for them. Oh, you know? That's what I mean. So you can do it for no. millions or many people are on there. Hundreds, hundreds billions, of billions, billions, I don't know, billion people maybe on Twitter. I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of millions. How many tweets a day? A billion tweets a day. You're gonna fact check them all because yeah. that's what's supposed to happen with the news story. And journalism, you're supposed to, if you're gonna be a news outlet, you need to um, fact check. You right. make sure that when somebody says it's this way, it actually is that way. Yeah, know? so that's why you can't be a news outlet one time and then, you know, the truth later. So, yeah. so lots of bankruptcies are going on right now. Mm -hmm. um, and how many more? A lot, I think. So right now, um, you know, with the big one that we recently had was Hertz. And Hertz is a company that's been around a long, long, long time, much longer than me and you've been around. And uh, they went bankrupt, filed uh, Chapter 11. And there's more and more all the time. Gold's Gym, which, uh, you know, Red Cowan does big business with. And we were on the phone with today. They, they did went to uh, Chapter 11. A lot of other companies are. And, and recently, 24-Hour Fitness is prepares. Is preparing for bankruptcy. Is there a chapter 11 as well? Uh, I believe it's chapter 11. I, I, you know, the different chapters, I'm honestly not familiar with what each chapter means. And I've seen a few people uh, file different, like chapter There's one, 13, seven. And, yeah. that. I'm not the, chapter I'm not sure. seven's personal. Yes. 11, for the most part, is, again, someone can fact check me and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more a restructuring of debt. We're not a media, we're not, we're a media outlet. We're not a news organization. So it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry, just two guys bullshit. Yeah, right? I don't, we don't fucking know. I mean, come on. But yeah, eleven is a restructured debt. So yes. I'm sure you might even hear at one point. I, you know, again, wouldn't be someone like GNC did because again, yeah, you own all these retail outlets, you're in all these real estate deals, and it's just a way to restructure some of your debt and get out of some of the overhead yes, from real estate. Important fact, yeah. You know, then you get down. So it's the eighty twenty rule, right? So yes, you know, eighty percent of your revenue comes from twenty percent of your locations, probably, and you know the with a lot of these businesses that just kept growing and growing and added overhead but maybe these you know laggard business you know locations yeah. weren't really driving a lot of revenue yes so it's not that they're going to go away it's just they're going to get rid of locations that maybe aren't busy and then streamline and i think that's one thing that'll come out of covid that might be positive is businesses streamlining get rid of just the waste and we've and we've actually heard that that's not just eric's opinion we've actually heard that from oh, I, checked that shit. Oh, I just checked, <laughs> i checked it a moment ago i checked it you didn't see me i checked it and i heard you're, you're right you're good so uh, <laughs> the last the company that we were dealing with that, that it's going through this now um it told us literally like hey we're good with you we're good with everybody it's strictly a real estate move we have bad deals and we have bad uh, locations that need to go, and this gives us an opportunity to get rid of those. Yeah, so just, take that that twenty that's awesome, and you know get rid of the eighty that's bad, or get most of maybe only twenty percent of the bad eighty. And now we're we're better positioned than we were before, and we're we're more much more healthy, and they can actually um, move out of chapter eleven and back to normal again. And I think that's one of the things that the most American public don't realize is that somebody goes bankrupt, uh, chapter eleven or whatever, they can reverse it and go out of it as well. It's not like you're done; the business is closed. 
So like Hertz, for example, it doesn't mean Hertz is closing all their stores and they're going to be gone next year or in a few months. They may be restructuring debt or restructuring, you know, uh, like for in this case, we talked about real estate stuff. Maybe they own real estate or renting in bad places. It's not working for them. This is their opportunity to restructure and become a more profitable company. Yeah, Hertz probably had way too many vehicles than they needed because they're they're paying a floor yeah. plan on them. Yeah. It was just a way to get out from underneath debt. Hundred percent. It could be. I think thirteen is when you just completely go out. Yes. Yeah. That's them. You're done. It's like Toys R Us. Yeah, they're gone. They're gone. They're not coming back. Unfortunately, yeah. I love I love Toys R Us, but it is what it is. Um, if they were here during uh, during COVID, they would really they'd be in trouble. <laughs> You'd be doing bogos all day long. Get some, uh, some good deals. <laughs> all right, guys, we're going to commercial break. When we come back, we have the Jack Carr coming on the show. Jack, you know what? I won't even do the introduction now. Let's wait till we get wait it now. I don't want to save all the good for when he gets here. All right. All right. This weekend, the savings are out of this world. With gyms open again, we're giving away tons of free swag and supplements to get you back on track. This weekend, spend $50 on our site, and we'll hook you up with a free Redcon 1 Patriot hoodie to celebrate the anniversary of V-Day. Spend $100, and we'll also add in a two-pound bottle of protein. Choose your product between our meal replacement, Emory Light, or Whey Isolate Isotope, or our vegan protein, Green Bray. Take it up a notch and spend 150 or more, and we'll throw in two boxes of our energy shot, FUBAR. Use the code DAY25 to save an additional 25% off the entire site. This weekend, we celebrate unity and love. Shop RedCon1.com right now and start saving while supplies last. Three journalists went missing today in the Central African Republic. Russian mercenaries had a recent briefing with the press secretary. An American woman was abducted by an agricultural project in Romania. Her current whereabouts are unknown. disavowing any knowledge of the whereabouts of former Navy SEAL sniper James Reese. All right, guys. So without further ado, I want to introduce our next guest, our third guest. And I'm very excited to have Jack Carr with us. Uh, hey, Jack, how you doing, buddy? How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me on. Really good. Jack, I didn't get to give the whole introduction. Jack is 
not just a New York Times bestselling author. He's also a, a, a vet who spent 20 years in the teams as a Navy SEAL and um, spent quite a bit of time uh, basically defending the country, defending our freedoms and uh, working, you know, with a lot of guys that we know, uh, kicking ass and killing bad guys, basically, you know. So first off, before we even get going, thank you for that. That is a huge, huge deal. And, and we truly appreciate uh, the time and the sacrifice that you did, you committed to uh, to protecting us. Yeah, 20 years of service. Uh, huge deal. Well, thank you so much. And for, uh, first time I became over you guys actually is through all uh, my friends that seem to be using your products. So <laughs> once, once I got on Instagram, I'm like, look at all these guys. They're getting all yoked up in the gym. How'd that guy get so big? And then it's like, Red one, you know, and like, <laughs> so that's how I first found out about you guys. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's funny how things go. So the, the, the SEAL team community is, uh, is extremely tight. You guys have a very tight circle and, and everybody kind of knows each other or at least knows somebody who knows somebody and reputation is a very big deal for the teams. Uh, so, you know, if you know one guy and you have a good relationship, quite often it leads to something else, which uh, which has been a really cool thing for, for us at Redcon to experience. And, uh, and even though I lived a very, very different life than, uh, than you did, there's a lot of similarities I find with team guys and people who are just generally um, obsessive about being the best or pushing the hardest or going farther than everybody else. And so there's some like, uh, uh, I don't know, synchronicities or some similarities between the way that, that we work and the way that you guys work. And some of the guys like you take that and use that to generate a lot of future success. Some of them, some of the guys are trying to figure out how to use it. But everybody has that characteristic. Have you found that, Jack? Yep. And uh, it, it's interesting because, yeah, we have that drive, obviously, because we, one, first we joined the military to do something that we knew was very difficult going in. And we knew that the odds of success were low, just making it through training. And that was the draw. But uh, I, I saw a lot of guys get out and then have a hard time because however long they spent in, whether it was five years or 10 years or 15 or 20, whatever it was, uh, it was so intense that they're tried to then recreate that in the private sector. And it's just not something that can be recreated because the decisions that you're making, both in training and downrange specifically, are going to impact those to your right and left and might end up in them coming home in a bag if you do something wrong, or even if you do something right sometimes, uh, that that can happen as well. So it's just so intense, it's so primal, it's so visceral. You're there for those guys on your right and left and for the mission as a whole. And then when you get out, it's not like that. And I think just knowing that as you make that transition, accepting that and knowing that, hey, I'm going to use this foundation that I have built over the whole my life because you were someone before you got to the Navy. Uh, so you're built, using that foundation to then move forward. And I think that's the key is using that to move forward, just like you would anything else in life, no matter what profession that you're in, because a transition is a transition. And uh, you're going to go through those transitions in business, uh, whether you're in professional sports, through a, through a divorce or whatever it may be, but you're going to make that transition. And for us in special operations, we just have to realize that, oh, you know what, when I go and start this new company or I join another company or I go to law school or get an MBA or whatever it might be, you know, it's not going to be like being in a platoon. It's not going to be like going into Ramadi at 06 in the height of the war. It's going to be different and that's okay, but I'm going to use what I, this foundation that I built over a lifetime to move the ball forward. So I think that's, that's really important. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting that a lot of guys, so you, you talk about a transition, right? You're, you're in this 
you're doing something that's huge. There's a huge purpose behind it. It's bigger than you. And when they leave, when most guys leave, they don't have the advantage that you had. Because I know for a fact, you know, I've heard interviews and, and, and obviously I've read all the books. You knew what you wanted to do. Lots of guys get out and they go, well, what, what the fuck's next? I mean, I'm, I, I did all this. It was so huge. It was so important. And now I am lost because that was my life and that's who I am. And I don't know what's next. Yeah, no, that's tough. And so when I talk to guys that are getting ready to get out or have gotten out and are scrambling a little bit, um, what I say is that, hey, because I had some backup plans. You know, I knew I wanted to be a SEAL my whole life and I knew I wanted to write fiction my whole life because of the way, way I grew up and the books I loved reading and everything. Um, but I had some contingency plans just in case that didn't work out. Um, and the way that I looked at those contingency plans were I identified ahead of time what was important to me. And everyone's going to have something different there. But what identifying what's important to you ahead of time allows you to say yes or no to something almost as soon as you the opportunity knocks. So you don't have to waste time researching a new industry, uh, a location, talking to your spouse about, oh, can we do this? Should we do this? Uh, no, you know ahead of time. And for me, that was, I needed that uh, uh, freedom. And it was that financial freedom and it was freedom to control my own schedule. So those were the two things. So as opportunities came my way, as I was getting out, if they didn't meet both of those criteria, it was an instant no. So I didn't have to waste very limited bandwidth on figuring out if something was a good fit or not, or, Hey, can I make this work? Should I make this work? Is it okay? I didn't have to worry about any of that because I knew what was important to me ahead of time. I discussed it with my wife and we could say yes or no based on that criteria that we'd established. So I think doing that ahead of time is really beneficial for guys. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, I, I have to ask, cause I know, we, I know enough guys, we know enough guys to know, like, so were you, marriage is difficult, difficult for team guys, especially yeah. team guys that have been in 20 years. And that's, this is something I would ask later because you, but because you mentioned her a bunch being married during this whole process, how, how does that, how difficult is that for, for you? Or how difficult was it for you, for your wife? You are, you're one of the very few that, that are, you know, that that's intact, right? Yeah, no, it's crazy. Um, and, and it was, it was even more insane because, you know, I never planned on staying in for, for 20 years before September 11th. It was like, Hey, do a few, few years here. And then maybe we'll look at some other options or something like that. Uh, but as soon as September 11th kicked off, then we were all in. And I think that was a really interesting time to be in, not just as individual operators, but as families, because there was a paradigm that shifted after Vietnam and then became the model from the end of Vietnam, really up until September 11th. And you stepped in to that model as a new guy and you knew what you could expect going forward. Maybe there'd be a flashpoint here or there. Maybe you get to do something here or there, but generally you knew you're going to be at a team. You knew the workup and that was going to go. Um, and then that totally shifted after 9-11 that model was turned on its head and a new one had to be established and it took a little while to do that and figure that out not just as teams and as operators but as families so we really felt like we were in it together back yeah. then because the families were figuring it out the kids were figuring it out like everybody's just trying to figure out this new this new model that was really constant war and constant deployments to war zones from september 11th up until today and continuing into today. Um, so for me, what helped and every individual, every situation is going to be different. But uh, for me, it was important to talk to my wife about 
that pendulum and how it, when we're in the teams, it's going to be right there on the side of the team. And it has to be because as a leader, I have to be solely focused on the task at hand. That's what I owe the guys under my command. That's what I owe their families. That's what I owe the mission. That's what I owe the country by default. Um, but that's where the pendulum has to be. But you know what? When we're out and when we move on, that pendulum is going to swing back to the family, which is uh, which is where we are now. So I think just talking about that instead of saying that, hey, I'm going to figure out this work-life balance thing and I got to balance my responsibilities of the team with my responsibilities as a family. You know, I, so yeah, the way I did that was, hey, that pendulum is on the team. And I was very clear about that. And she knew that going in even before September 11th. But I think talking about that, so you're not, there aren't any false hopes or false uh, kind of expectations that aren't met because the spouse is counting on you to balance both being on the team and being at home. And for me, that works. I don't think it would work for everybody, but uh, being able to talk about that and because she's part of that team too, the family's part of that team too. And they know that, uh, that they're part of that pendulum being over here, uh, on this side on the, with the team, but now, Hey, we're not anymore. And that can swing back. Yeah. So for, for, you know, a lot of guys, um, it's weird. It's kind of a weird question, even though I, I probably know the answer, but, uh, I think it's an interesting thing because you were, uh, and the team is before nine 11 and you're obviously all, mostly after nine 11. So, did you feel when that happened, I guess it's two questions. One, you know, where were you when you found out the about 9-11? Um, and then also, did you feel fortunate? Because obviously the, the golden era of the teams, a lot of people would say, is, you know, the time that you were in, which is a weird thing to say, but it's that's the facts, right? No, that's exactly it. Um, so I was in my second platoon and we were about two weeks into my second deployment. So we were in Guam and in Guam, uh, September 11th happened about midnight or so. So people start going up and down the hallways, banging on the doors of the barracks, uh, waking each other up. We didn't have TVs in our rooms back then. So we went down to the basement of the barracks where there was a big screen TV. And then we watched the, the Twin Towers fall. So um, that, that's what we were. So we were all together. I was enlisted. We were with the platoon. We were all together. And then it, it, after that, it was a little bit of a scramble to figure out exactly what was going on. And of course, I was uh, I was always into to reading and studying warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies well before 9-11 and well before I came into the military. So um, I knew who Osama bin Laden was. I knew what Al Qaeda was. I knew what it meant. Um, and I gave a brief to the commanding officer of the Naval Special Warfare Group at um, or detachment or whatever it's called in Guam. And uh, he didn't know much about Al Qaeda back then, uh, and this is the day after 9/11. Waking up that uh, that morning, um, so yeah, it was uh, it was, and also we all felt very lucky, especially when the plane took off, and we all thought we were going to Afghanistan. We ended up not going there right away. My platoon, anyway, we went to and took over for Team Three doing shipboardings in the in the in the Gulf. Well, those guys went in, and I found myself in Afghanistan not long after, though. But we thought, uh, you know what, we. We, we might miss the guys that are back in the States right now. They are bummed because they're going to miss this and, uh, and we're here. And, uh, so, and same thing when I finally, when I did get to Afghanistan in 2003, um, you know, I thought, Oh man, this thing's still going on. I got so lucky to get here while this thing was still <laughs> happening. And, uh, and I think that was the, the attitude of most guys, which is why a lot of people actually got out to contract because they thought that they were going to miss it. They're like an E5 and you know, their platoon, maybe they didn't go to Afghanistan or after 2003, it didn't go to Iraq. And they thought, Oh man, I'm, I've missed it. My platoon went to, went to Europe. Cause we still had went to Philippines, went to Colombia, wherever it was, because we still had these relationships with other countries and we needed to fulfill those missions in those other countries. Uh, and the guys were like, Oh man, I'm going to get out and contract, get to Iraq, get to Afghanistan. That's going to be my way. And then now here we are 
20 years later, and uh, there really wasn't a threat of missing it. Yeah, it, I, I've, I've heard that plenty of plenty of times, and I know a lot of guys that that uh, that were either in buds at the time or, or just went through SQT that were that were like excited, and then like, oh shit, now I'm you know I'm getting put placed somewhere, I'm getting deployed somewhere else, um, and and we're very very disappointed about being uh, and some of them got into Afghanistan in two thousand four or five, but they they missed a lot, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, it, uh, you know, what you have to do is realize that even if you're one year out from deployment and you're scheduled, let's say, to go to the Philippines or you're scheduled to go somewhere that you really don't want to go because there's a war in Iraq and there's a war in Afghanistan, that can shift in a heartbeat. And uh, I mean, the day before you deploy, you could shift over and find yourself in Iraq, find yourself in Afghanistan, find yourself in another one of these uh, these countries that's just lighting off. So um, so the, our job really is to always be prepared to go to war. And uh, as a leader, that's important to always, to continually articulate and to weave in to conversations, weave in uh, to not just conversations, but when you're putting out word to the guys, to briefings, to whatever it is, uh, that, hey, this can change in a heartbeat. And yeah, we're scheduled to go to the Philippines right now, but uh, anytime, our job is to be prepared to go to war. Uh, right. And that that always remains the case. So that has to be the sole focus. And as a leader, both uh, as officer and enlisted senior enlisted leadership, that's where you have to keep the guys focused on being prepared for war and continually making themselves better SEALs each and every day. Yeah. So you guys, so when you, uh, it's funny because people probably they're watching go, well, what, what the hell you wanted to, you know, but you guys are, are trained, you go there because that's what you're wanting to do. You want to go into combat you want to defend the country you want to kill bad guys and i think for a lot of people that's very very foreign where that it's it, it, the thought process would be the exact opposite so it's like you guys it's like being the best way i could explain it and you probably could do a better job is if you play i played high school football i wasn't very good but if you were good and you're on the bench right you want to go and you want to have an opportunity to play and so if you just sit the bench the whole your whole high school career you're a pro and you're like in your case you guys case you're a pro and you sit the bench, you never play one down. That's, that's the shit. And the people that the team guys I've met who seem to be the most angry are the ones that never, <laughs> ever uh, went to war that never saw any combat. Yeah. I mean, it can, it can happen. I mean, if you stay in long enough, if you put in that time and you uh, do what you can to stay in an operational billet, like especially after September 11th, like you'll wind up there at, at some point. Um, you just got to stay in, you got to put, put in all that, uh, that mat time and training and just stay in billets that will, hopefully get you where you need to go. But yeah, for us, like we thought coming in, well, and probably for most of us, like we wanted to be tested in that crucible that is buds. We all want to be tested in hell week, see if we can make that. But as soon as that's over, you want to be tested in combat. That's really, that's just a path. That's just something, that's just something you have to do to get to your team, to learn the trade, to really establish your reputation, to become a sniper, to get good at free fall, become a breacher, whatever you're going to, you're going to do. And then to apply those skills against the enemy and we thought when we got to our first seal teams we all thought we were going to show up and get issued these pagers and get all this awesome gear and then we'd like fly off and save the princess and then be back in time for beers the next night and uh that didn't happen like we got there and they handed us mops and brooms and said you know clean that bathroom and paint that wall and change that light bulb and you know do new guy stuff uh take out the trash you know make sure there's beer in the fridge uh all that new guy stuff and uh so we didn't really get to do what we thought we were coming in to do until after September 11th. And then that paradigm shifted and we started to do the things that we thought we were going to do when we first showed up. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's uh, you, you came in the right time in the right place. So you mentioned Buds, you mentioned Hell Week, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the experience because uh, obviously that's something that a lot of people know about, know the training and know how difficult the training is at, uh, at Buds. And I've had the, I guess, the good fortune of being able to go visit and see the whole place and go to Coronado Island and get a tour of, uh, of everything and see all the, see everything. Uh, without actually having to go there and do all the hug. I, I never, I was like, you're I, smart. I, that's the way to do it. Yeah. I have a picture of me on the grinder standing there, but I nice. actually didn't have to have any of the bad stuff. Well, what he's there. actually asking is, can you help him get uh hell week? He wants to go and do it. No, I, no, I think there's a couple of companies that actually I, offer that now. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? I yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. He yeah. wants to do hell. No, 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 no. I wouldn't. I could maybe survive SpaceX. I could definitely could not survive Helly. I think, Jack, tell me what your opinion is. Can, can any 40 year old man, because I'm 40, unfortunately, 40 year old man survive buds? So is there a 40 year old man out there that can take the beating that goes, that, that's required that to go hasn't to the done it before? <laughs> no, even, even, I don't know. He may tell you that nobody, I don't know. Let's see what Jack says. I'm sure. So I'm, so I'm not sure if a 40 year old person has done buds before it's possible. I don't know. Um, but, uh, and, and maybe there's waivers. So maybe there, there is hope for you yet. You know, there's usually <laughs> a waiver for <laughs> waivers. There's waivers for, for most things in the, in the military. But so really any average high school athlete can, can make it through. Um, and cause really what we're looking for is that grit, that mental fortitude, that determination, that drive. Um, and we're going to get you in shape. Like you can show the better, better shape you're in when you show up, probably the better it is for you. But if you're an average high school athlete, you show up those first couple weeks, you'll be getting in shape. Like we're going to run you pretty good. You're going to go through that obstacle course. Uh, you're going to fall off maybe a couple of times, but you're going to get it. And then on the outside, when you're in your off time, you're going to learn some of that technique. You're going to go back to that obstacle course. And if you had problems with something that first week, then you're going to figure out how to get that rope down. You're going to figure out how to do that on the weekend. Or if you're having trouble in a swim, you're going to talk to a buddy and say, how are you so fast in the water? And that person's going to take you out and teach you some of that technique. And they, we do a lot better these days, I think, of teaching guys the technique on all these things. Because when I went through, it was just like baptism by fire. Um, but now I think we take a lot more time to teach them that technique so we don't lose good guys simply because they've never seen the ocean before and they didn't really understand this new type of stroke that we teach there which is the combat side stroke which no one does anywhere really but in the military uh so so any average high school athlete will get there as you can tell from from these pictures you know the guys look like yeah they're just kind of young and in shape and looks like a like a high school i don't know football lacrosse rugby whatever type team um but once you get there yeah what we're looking some of those guys that are in the best shape are going to quit the first hour of hell week. And I heard that when I first got there and I looked around and I saw these guys that were just these physical specimens and I saw them climbing these ropes and I saw them yelling at the class to motivate everybody. And I was like, Oh man, this is crazy. I, I'm going to make it through this thing with a, a guy looks like that. And then sure enough, first hour of hell week, that guy's ringing the bell. And I was like, yep, I love it. This thing, that's, that's the program working. And uh, a lot of my class would say, you know, go oh, come back when someone would get out of the surf zone in hell week or go to go to quit and, you know, Oh, come back, come back. And I never said a thing because <laughs> I was like, this is the program working. And uh, if that guy is thinking about quitting right now, then he needs to go away. So, uh, so I always remained silent uh, when someone got up to quit, like, yep, that's it. Kind of take some of their power. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the things, right. Is that like, in a way, I mean, I'm just putting myself in the position is that like everybody who quits is one less guy, you know, because you know basically the percentages seem to stay the same. So if you've got a, a class of 200, you basically know 
20, 30 of them are going to make it. So every guy that's gone, you're like, okay, better chance for me. Better chance, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, a friend of mine used that as a technique. He'd look at one person and say, I'm not going to quit till they quit. And then that person would quit and he'd just shift to a new person. He'd be like, okay, I'm not going to quit till they quit. And that person would quit. And he just kept picking new people until he made it through until Friday afternoon. So that, uh, that worked for him. And, uh, you know, for me, I thought about, cause it, yeah, it's, it's hard, whatever. But what I thought about was how much harder it was for the generations that sacrificed so much to give me the opportunity to be there on that beach in Coronado, doing those pull-ups, doing those sit-ups, doing those push-ups, getting yelled at, doing those swims. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm not going across the beach in Normandy, like the, like those people that, uh, that had to do that, that had to go and sprint towards entrenched enemy machine gun positions, elevated positions, or go across the beach at Iwo Jima, or those people from the beginning of this country up until today, from the inception of our country, that sacrificed everything so that we could have the freedoms we have today. So I was like, well, I can do some more push-ups. You know, I can get I can get yelled at a little bit more here. This isn't so bad. Did you, Jack, did you ever consider, like seriously consider quitting and ringing the bell and, and calling being like, screw it? No, you know, it's just hard. And you're like, you know what, I could be nice and warm right now, but it's not like, oh man, I should quit and be nice and warm right now. So it's not like an either, either, or, you know, it's like, it's always there. The bell is there the entire time, but, and people will say, if you didn't think about quitting, then you're wrong. So I guess you think of it in more like abstract terms, because you're seeing people quit the whole time. The bell is just ringing because uh, we put it in the trailer hitch of the vehicles that follow us around during Hell Week. So the rest of first phase, it's on the grinder. So you have to actually run. You have to make an effort to get to that bell, put your helmet down and ring it three times. Well, for Hell Week, we make it very easy. We put it in the trailer hitch of a vehicle that's within sight of you the entire week. So uh, so you see it happening. So you think of it in those terms. But uh, you know, for me, I've been uh, telling people I was going to be a SEAL since I was seven years old. So I couldn't very well go home uh, having quit after after telling everybody. It's Isn't it funny? So, so Jack, a lot of the people that I am friendly with or friends with or associated with, it seems like a large majority of the team guys are have had this in their mind for a long time. I mean, for me personally, the reason why I initially was interested in this in uh, and so so for me, just a little bit, a little background is that I was a uh, a problem child, you know, essentially, and, and I had uh, drug problems in my teenage years, and then very severe drug problems in my early twenties. But I always I always like loved the idea and was very interested in in navy seals i love the movie navy seals with charlie sheen i read rogue warrior many many times oh, i yeah. love the uh, i mean i was i was really you know there wasn't a lot of material then but I, I had read all of it many times and i thought like hey that's me i'm i'm the the outcast that could do a good thing and and, and kill bad guys and i'd like to be do something more important and then my loss i kind of got lost along the way but I, a lot of guys um, have either a similar story like Adam Brown who had a similar story that actually re redirected it and, and yeah. did, did what I did, but then decided and was able to redirect towards something positive earlier. I, I did the same thing and redirected something positive later in my, in my life. Uh, he was able to figure it out earlier and, uh, and lots and lots of guys, basically almost everybody. I'm trying to think of who I know that didn't know there's somebody I know and I'm trying to figure out the yeah, there's a couple guys that are like, yeah, I heard about it in boot camp. I'm like, what? Yeah. You heard about this in boot camp? Like, yeah, what? How can you not know about this? Like, I've been yeah, Terry, on Terry. this for all these years. Yeah, Terry I asked Terry who in one time. Hey, I Terry, said, hey, how did yeah. you? Because he served so long. Yeah, Terry was one. And of I asked him, I was like, is this something you always want to do? He goes, no. Nah. He goes, I was good. At, I was a good swimmer. And I just thought I could do it. 
Yeah. That's pretty yeah, much there's guys like that. Yeah. There's some that, uh, that show up at boot camp and hear about it, or they heard about it, you know, a year before. And then they say, ah, that sounds good. I'll go into the military and give that a shot. And then there are guys like me that have wanted to do it their, their whole life or guys that when they found out about what seals were, if they were 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever that year was, what year was that's as soon as they heard about it, they're like, that's what I want to do. And it's just, I happened to hear about them when I was seven. Oh, Other people oh, found out right. later along the line. What's what that? that? Dom Rosso and his, uh, his best buddy, John Devine yeah, were, yeah. were sealed, end up, they were, as children, they played and pretended to be SEALs together and uh, ended up both becoming SEALs. And obviously Dom went a little further and was a little longer uh, yeah. in the old squadron, but John Devine, you know, and they, they both went, they both served. Uh, I think they served together a little bit of time, but most of them, they're separate, but they both went and made it through Buds and yep. uh, to, to this day remain very close. Yeah, um, great guys. Yeah, John yeah. helps me out. Well, they both helped me out immensely with the novels. Uh, in the first two videos, uh, Dom Dom is the uh, is the guy in the first two videos, and then uh, uh, John helped me out a ton with the dog stuff in book three. So I'd call him, and be like, "Hey, if I was to call you right now and say, hey, we need to go do something, uh, what gear do you have if we're bringing a multi-purpose canine with us? One of the ones that you're training. Like, well, give me that capabilities right now, not what we had in the military, but what you have. If I'm to call you and say, hey, we need to go do this assault right now, what do you have? And then I wrote that down and got it in the book. Yeah, John. Uh, John's a great guy. And, yeah, and, awesome. Uh, I have a, a a dog being trained by him at this very moment. Uh, so do I. Oh, do you both? We both <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. That's awesome. So I have Scout with him right now, and I think Scout would be back with us had uh, the COVID stuff not hit. But yeah. I think that uh, prolonged things a little bit. I've and, seen uh, Scout. So my dog is Nola, and he yeah. and she's with him right now as well. And I've nice. seen these two dogs together. So awesome. It's really, really cool. Yeah. So we. Uh, um, it's funny because Dom was at my house and we were doing cardio together and I was like walking and he's doing a stair mill at like a, a, a <laughs> run um, pretty much. And uh -huh. yeah, he, was, he was telling me about the benefit because he has a, he has, well, he's got a bunch of kids. <laughs> he's got a bunch, <laughs> he's got a bike. I think he's got one more than me, one more than us, me and you. And uh, maybe two more. I don't know. You, we have three. Does he have four or five? I'm not sure. How hard to keep track. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so he was saying how, like how important it is, for the, my boys, I have three boys to, to have a dog and how great it's been for his family. And he was telling me about his experience. I'm like, fuck, I, I should have a dog. I should, I should do it. Right. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, cause I had a dog that I loved that passed away. And, and, uh, and I was like, you know, dogs don't live long enough. I don't want my kids to go through that kind of loss, uh, as a child. And he's like, dude, you're, you're missing out. This is important. And then you can get a dog like the dog that I have that can protect your family. You travel a lot. The dog will die for your family and, and it will, it will fight and die for your, for your, your boys and your wife. And I'm like, all right, that kind of made, that makes sense to me. I mean, I can, I, I feel that I understand that. And, uh, and I started looking into it and, uh, he put me in touch. I'm also friends with Mike Ritland. So I was, yeah. you know, who to talk to, but once he, uh, I went and visited John in, uh, in L well, outside of LA and I saw his whole compound and training the dogs. I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's do this. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to get the dog at the house. Yeah. That's awesome. And for kids, I think, yeah, it's yeah. tough when a dog passes away, but it also helps teach them a little bit about, uh, you know, mortality, life and death. Um, and so it's kind of, uh, I don't really, I think it's, as horrible as it is and as painful as it still is to even think back now on dogs that you've had in the past and just think about that. I mean, it's, Oh, it's like, it, it's painful, but, uh, but I think it's, it's beneficial and almost necessary for, for yeah. kids to have that. He expressed all that. And you know what? I, 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 once I thought about it, I agreed and I was like, you know what, we should, I should do it. And so that, and we did. So, um, before we get into the writing stuff, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about buds 
um, because people are fascinated with Hell Week and, yeah. and and going through the process. So if you could think of a time, for, so for me, <laughs> if I imagine myself, right, the thing that scares me or makes me the most nervous is the uh, is drown proofing and uh, the pool work. I'm actually a pretty decent swimmer, not great by any means, but not bad. But going through the actual like we're seeing right now, this is no big deal. Like I feel like I'm I'm okay with that PT. I'm okay with you know surf the surf torture. I could deal yeah. with that. But going in the pool and tying your hands and feet together and going about going up and down or any of that stuff. Uh, and I'm and I'm a master scuba diver and I did it. I've done quite a bit of diving. I don't think I'd be comfortable. And that that kind of makes me nervous. Was that what was the worst thing or what is a story you can remember that was terrible for you? Yeah. So, I mean, it's all pretty terrible, but it's all also, I mean, looking back, it's like, it's probably the easiest thing I did in the team. You have to show up at the right place at the right time with the right gear, put out and not quit. Like, that's it. That's all you have to do. You don't have to outthink the enemy. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Uh, you don't have to adapt quicker than the enemy. You don't have to do any, you just have to not quit essentially and run really fast and, uh, and swim fast enough and do all those things. So, um, so when I look back, I don't, look back and say, Oh, this one part was so horrible. Um, the swims were tough for me. Uh, even though I was not, I was comfortable in the water. Um, but learning that combat stride stroke was tough, which is probably why I used it as an example earlier. Um, and a guy, a water polo player from, uh, that played water polo in college took me aside and showed me how to do this side stroke thing. And, and I was like, Oh, as soon as he did that, I went from being like second to last to, uh, to second on one swim. And, uh, and then I remained in that, that top group for the rest of the time. So, so that was hard just because I was like in that, especially in that first part, I was like, Oh man, am I ever going to figure this out, figure this one thing out. But when you talk about having your hands and feet tied, thrown in the pool, um, we do a few different things, uh, throughout the, especially those first two phases, just to make sure that you're comfortable in the water. And I was comfortable in the water. I grew up uh, around the water and I uh, got certified as a scuba, a scuba diver when I was nine years old. My dad, I think, lied about my age. Um, so I'd gone abalone diving, just breath hold up in Northern California for those abalone down there, right? And, you know, great white sharks out there. I'd like to go back and do it today, I think. Uh, bring my kids because it was such a great experience for me. But, uh, you know, like as, as Joe Rogan says, you know, the chances of getting eaten by a great white if you don't go in the water is zero. Mm -hmm. um, so I was comfortable in the water. I was comfortable in cold water, more importantly, and murky water, more importantly than that. So when you add cold, you add dark and you take away air um, like it, that, that, yeah, that's an equalizer right there. So what we're doing after that first phase, you found out who wants to be there, who has kind of that that leadership, who has that drive, who has that uh, that mental fortitude, who has that grit to be there. And now you want to make sure that those guys are comfortable in the water. Uh, so during first phase, you've done a couple of things like that drown proofing, which really isn't that bad. Like that part was was no big deal. Underwater knot tying, you have to go on a breath hold and tie some knots and do some. Life saving was my favorite. So life saving is also in first phase where they have the instructors out there. And I think it's like five of them, and you go to these different stations, and each one plays a different type of drowning victim. Uh, some are just like limp in the water. Uh, others fight you. Some are in between. And I love that because it was the only time in buds where you get to put your hands on an instructor. The rest of the time, it's like you're just getting yelled at. You're doing push ups. You're getting you know sand kicked in your face. You're being told you're not good enough. Uh, but this time you're getting put your hands on an instructor. And I love that. And I'd done some, uh, I'd done a lot of martial arts up until that point. So I was already into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu early on, as soon as I found out about it in the early nineties. And so when I'm bringing these guys back to the wall in the pool, I'm like, okay, he's taking me to the bottom. I'm just going to relax, just relax. And he's going to exert all this energy, pounding me off the bottom of the pool. I'm just chilling. 
and he's gonna have to go up for air soon enough and then, yeah sure enough he'd have to go up for air and then i'd be up in the air take a little couple more uh uh strokes toward the the side of the pool and then he'd do again boom he's got his air and then i just relax so martial arts stuff really helped in those situations i think as did diving up there in uh, off the northern california coast uh both with scuba tanks and uh breath holds for those abalone so i think all that really helped because when i got to the water stuff i was uh very comfortable in drown proofing uh in that the life saving and in pool comp where we lose the most amount of people other than hell week and that's when you take you have your twin 80s on your back they look at something out of like i don't know 1940 something and you're crawling across the bottom of the pool and then the instructors pounce on you and they tie pull the hoses because you have two hoses going back to those tanks and they tie those in a knot they rip off your mask they pound you in the gut a couple times so you expel all your all your air and turn off your air on your tank and then they kind of push you away you have to go through these certain procedures to get your air turned back on get that regulator back in your mouth all that sort of thing uh, and you have to do that nice calm cool collected and they're watching and as soon as you do that they pounce on you again and they do that for i think about 15 minutes until you've proven to them that okay this guy's comfortable in the water he can problem solve down here he can go through these procedures uh so for me that was uh, i love that part that was that was good because once again that's an instructor yeah it's, you're not really hands on the instructor on that part but you're kind of close enough you know you're like you're like showing them that you can do this rather than just showing them you can do some more push-ups and then they tell you to do more so i uh, i enjoyed that part of it and i'm sure you could do it if you're comfortable in the water you're comfortable being being down there you can you can handle that part can we implement some of this in like new employee hire? Like, I mean, you, I don't see why not. I mean, we could try it. You shop waivers. My house. I mean, we could we could just throw them down there and tie their hands and legs together. Yeah, I mean, if you can make it to your desk, you're good. You survive, you survive. <laughs> not. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that all that doesn't do is though it doesn't. So all those things that we're testing for, it, they don't test for character. And I think for uh, for you guys or for businesses on the outside, um, yeah, you can get a sense of that by watching people, especially in groups, do something like, I don't know, a Spartan race or mud run or, or whatever that sort of thing is. But uh, the Israelis actually do a much better job of testing for character than we do. And they're, they're part of the, their, their seals are called Flotilla 13. And they'll do things like mm, uh, fill up your pack with sand. You have to run a certain course miles through the night or whatever. And they make it very easy to dump out that sand ahead of time or while you're like into the course and then fill it back up right before you check back in at the end. And then they ask you at the end, Hey, did you dump your sand? And, uh, what's important isn't if you did it or not, it's, uh, if you answer honestly, and if you lie, I think they give you a second chance, but it's a data point. And they do a few things like that. Like, Hey, dig a foxhole for the group, dig a foxhole for yourself, go. And you know, it's the third night of their hell week or whatever it might be. I'm just making that part up, but, uh, they watch, Hey, who digs their own first and who digs the group one. Uh, first, and then once again, data point on character. So, um, so there's some things that we can definitely do better in our training. So I have a different, I have a follow up question, but that made me think of a different one. So, did you, do you, you have a lot of shitheads that 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 were not had no character? It sounds like you had some, right? Just like anything else in society, I mean, we're segments of society. Uh, maybe the percentages are a little bit, uh, you know, there are less people in those just because we're a smaller segment. But just like any other cross cut section of society, you're going to get that that same thing well, in the teams well the difference the, the, there's the, in a lot better shape yeah right the difference the di i feel like the difference is, is that so when you talk about people who are willing to do who want to go to that extreme who want to be the the tip of the spear so to say right you have i'm sure you have people that are, have different reasons for wanting to be the tip of the spear and i know when i uh when i went to buds i asked you know we talked to uh, the instructor who gave us the tour and he gave me the reasons that are good and the reasons that are bad. And uh, he said, you know, 
because he asked my wife, who was there. We went on a Sunday when none of the guys, they were all polishing helmets and shit. Right. Um, so we went with, he's like, if you're bringing your wife, probably not a good idea to come during these days. Better to go on a So we went on a Sunday and uh, he's like, uh, so we went and saw the board in the instructors, you know, area, right? And all the all the people that have been rolled back and the reasons and everything else. And and I said, so, you know, well, um, what's the what's the reasoning to roll them back or versus, you know, one thing or another. And he said, well, the reason that they're there is important. And I said, so what's a good reason? And he said, what do you think is a good reason? And my wife said, because we want, if they wanted to see if they can do it. And he's like, that's a terrible reason. <laughs> they want to, want to see if they can do it is a terrible reason. We don't want people who are using this as a personal challenge. And so there's probably a lot of bad reasons that people want to be. And sometimes some, just because it's a bad reason doesn't mean you're going to get stopped along the way. You may have a, a, a great you know, constitution. You may have a great ability to, to suffer. You may have a willingness to do whatever it takes to get there, even if it's a bad reason. Yeah. And I think those, those numbers would be quite small. People are there for the wrong reasons because to really, you have to really want it. And we yeah. make it very easy to be warm, uh, to, to not be on the verge of hypothermia, to, to not be sleep deprived. Uh, we make that very, make it very easy to opt out. So I think it does a, a better job of keeping people in that are there for the, for the right reasons um, than those who are trying to do it just, uh, I don't know, for a resume or whatever it is. I don't even know. But uh, I think I'm sure people do make it through like that. But I think the numbers are probably pretty small because you have to put up with a lot. It'd be a lot easier just to be like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to do this some other way. You know, yeah. I don't need to go through this. Um, so, so I think we do a pretty dang good job. And, and uh, time does has told us that uh, we do get a pretty good product out the other end. 100%. For, for, for us, like in business, I always tell people, like that if you don't love what you do and you want to be extremely successful, it's so hard to do that, to be, you want to achieve something truly great and build a business that's unique and big and successful. That's, that's something, you know, long lasting and iconic. If you don't like what you're doing, man, it is just too fucking hard. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to do something they hate and create huge, huge, huge success. And, and to be in the teams, it's, I'm sure it's very, very rare. Somebody who has a bad reason, who doesn't want to do it for the right reason to push through that kind of thing. I mean, it's gotta be right. No. Cause you know, like say every to get up every day and you know, I don't know how many days aren't tough around here. You know I mean? Yeah. Your business is there's always something. Yeah, there's always, always, yeah. So you better absolutely love doing it because otherwise you just be like, fuck it, I'll go do something different. And then to go through what you guys do. Yeah. I mean, I think Brandon Cruz said it best to me. It's always resonating. He goes, no, I knew exactly what I was getting into. I, I decided I wanted to do this and you know, he knew exactly what he was signing up for, and that's what he wanted to do. So, you know, it's just like nobody's forcing us to do what we're doing. No, no. We do it because we want to. Yeah, you can't complain about something you volunteer for. So, yeah, you've got to love it. People around you will sense it. I mean, especially okay. especially now, not just those around you, but because of social media and, oh. and all the other, how transparent most things are these days. Um, like, you're going to affect, people will sense it eventually. Maybe not the first day, maybe not the second, maybe not the next week, but people are going to sense it, that you're, that, that you don't love what you do. You don't have that passion, um, that you don't want this to grow into something bigger than yourself. Like, like people, will, people sense it. I can tell. Authenticity is a, is a thing that people can sniff out now because of the world is, you know, oh, yeah. everything I'm, is visible. 
Oh yeah. I think there are probably there are people out there that have what uh, reputation managers or whatever, but I'm sure there are, but man, it is tough to hide these days. Like you have to have a presence on social media. And then if it's not you, well, that's obvious too. Uh, right. So it's uh, yeah, it, the real you is going to come out at some point uh, on social media. And it we're, will be we're about to get, you. We're about Jack to get to writing. Uh, we went all this way we're about to get to writing, but uh, I have to ask, you said, Buds was easy, right? Compared to other things you did, or every, I think you said everything you ever did as a Buds. So after Buds. So if Buds was, this is not, so, so Dom Rosso, uh, you know him, we know him, and he's a friend of ours and he's a kind of like teammate at Red Kind of One. Um, and when I interviewed Dom, um, I he, he has not played the interview um, so far in his podcast or whatever. And I asked him before we did the interview, I said, hey man, because he wanted me, so he's did, he did all these podcasts and interviewed me and a bunch of other people that you know and and, and uh, people that I know. And I said, hey, man, th- let me tell you something. If you want to be popular, if you want to get this thing out there to people, if you want to help people by the content you're putting out, you need to be transparent and, and you know, let people know exactly who you are. Do you want me to interview you? I can do it and I will put out who you are. And he's like, hell yeah, man, let's do it. Because uh, he was doing it, he came to Boca to, to do it with me and to Sean Rosario, who's who's my buddy, who's a Gold Squadron guy mm-hmm. before Dom, and uh, and he's like, "Yeah, let's do it." And I'm like, "Okay, so I'm gonna ask you questions you're not comfortable with. It may make you upset, and I don't want you to hurt me." So, <laughs> which is a real okay? issue. Like, yeah, I'm like I'm not gonna. I want you to tell me you're not gonna hurt me before I do it. And if you are, then we won't do the interview. And he's like, okay, I won't, I won't, I'm good, I'm good. And I'm like, you're sure? Because these are the questions that people are going to get, you're going to get like, you may get upset with. And he's like, no, no, do it, right? And we did it, and he never played the interview as awesome as it was. It's the best interviews ever. I mean, not there's no interview ever been done with him, even remotely, not even in the in the, in a vicinity of this. I mean, I got, he cried, he got upset. I mean, he was, ta- I mean, he talked about all kinds of shit. So I'm not, I'm not trying to take you there before you get worried, John. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, geez. Yeah, like, I got to go. See you later. Exactly. At least can't kill you the screen. Yeah, yeah, I feel much safer here. Uh, he was next to me. Like, you know. yeah. Next time, do that remotely just to. Yes, yeah. We should do it. Yeah. He won't play it anyway. So, you know. <laughs> but um, so you said that Buds was easy compared to other stuff you did as, as, a, as an actual SEAL. What was something you could tell us? that was the worst thing or the most difficult thing that you went through or, or something in that vicinity that you're comfortable talking about after buds. Let's see. I think easy might be the wrong word. I think it means there you're just dealing with le- less, you have less to deal with. And those things that you're dealing with are very clearly defined. There's not, there's not much ambiguity. It's you show up here and we're going to have a 5am PT and you know, what you show up with, Oh, a canteen. Okay. And the shirt and these shorts and these boots. Okay. We can do that. Uh, and then next thing you're going to get, you're going to go to the obstacle course and you're going to be in a line and you're not going to be talking and you're going to be ready to go when the instructor staff shows up at nine 30 and there you go. Uh, so it's just very, and you're not, and if you want to quit, here's the bell. Uh, so I think easy was probably the wrong word to use. I just mean that you're not dealing with that much. Looking back, there's not, you know, if there's personalities in your class, yeah, you're maybe you're dealing with them in your your boat crew, but uh, you know, it, it's not the, 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 there's not a, just other dynamics at play. Like you're either going to be here uh, at the end of the day, or going to be here after lunch, or you're going to have quit. Uh, and it's very it's very, I guess, 
simple in that um, uh, in that respect. But uh, after buds, well, now okay, now you're a professional, and you show up, and you're expected to act in a professional manner. You're expected to earn your trident every single day, and you're expected to push yourself, push your teammates, uh, try to be better than the guy next to you at something, so that he in turn then tries to do it better than you. The next day. Um, and I love that about the teams. I love that competitive spirit because it made everybody each and every day uh, want to do better than the day before and do better than their buddies so that they all we all pushed each other uh, and making the organization stronger going forward. So uh, so everything after that, there's just more dynamics at play. Um, you're in a SEAL platoon. Uh, you're trying to go through a, a school. You don't want to fail that school. If you fail that school, then you have to go back to your platoon chief and what's going to happen then. Uh, do you even have your trident yet? Back when I was in, you had to go through six months of probation and then you got that thing pounded into your chest. Uh, so you essentially had to prove yourself to these guys who were going to then go downrange with you. And if they didn't want to go downrange with you, then you weren't going to make it through that six month probation period. Um, so there's just more dynamics at play at that point. And I think that's probably yeah. a, a better way to put it. And then we have to do a commercial break in just a minute before we go into the writing stuff. But before we do that, Jack, I have to hear one bad, tough or stressful specific moment when you were an active duty SEAL. Stressful. Well, I mean, there were. You have a general large answer. I want to hear something, one moment that was tough that you're like, man, I, I, was this the right decision or uh, how did I get here kind of thing? Yeah, I know that I, well, the toughest one was uh, my first, my buddy, the first guy that I knew that was so close to me that uh, that died. And a uh, guy I went through buds with, SEAL qualification training with, um, and just came back from lunch one day and i remember the last time i saw him alive and uh i thought he was going off to a free fall course a new uh new free fall course that wasn't the military one and uh so i'm in the parking lot i was getting to work i was i was not in that uh that class uh that free fall class and so i was i was just going into the team and they were leaving and we we joked around a little bit and uh off they went and then uh I went home for lunch. I think it was a couple of days later because they were at that course for uh, a week or two. And I uh, went home for, I think it might have been the first week, but yeah, I went home for lunch. I'm newly married, went home and uh, came back to the team in the afternoon. And then uh, Andy Stump uh, was leaving the team and I just saw this look on his face. And I'm like, huh, something's something's not right. And uh, he told me that uh, that our friend Mike Bearden had just, uh, had just burned in. And uh, so... He had a kid, had a wife, and so all that started. So that was the, the first time going through that and then driving up to that house that I'd been to so many times um, and going in there and, and seeing her after that. So that, uh, that was the toughest, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I'm sorry that that happened. Sorry for his family and that guy. It's, it's extremely tough. And, and uh, I can only imagine, you know, obviously I've read the books, Permalist and and uh, you know you talk about something like that and we'll go into that after the commercial break but you know I've talked to a lot of guys and uh, that's the ultimate sacrifice here's a guy training and you know you, you feel bad and sorry for him and obviously you feel even worse for the family that's left afterwards. Yeah, yeah. There's tough times. This that training is, uh, you know, if we lose guys in training, we lose guys in combat. The training is just inherently dangerous in and of itself. So, um, but yeah, that was the that was the first one. Um, and then, yeah, but those emotions, you know, then you know they'll weave those now into the the pages of these thrillers, and that's uh, you know, it ends up being uh, being therapeutic, I guess, in a way. 
Oh, we're definitely talking about that. All right. We'll be right back in just a minute. Thank you so much, Jack. We'll be back in uh, in uh, two minutes. Thanks, Jack. Savings are out of this world. With gyms open again, we're giving away tons of free swag and supplements to get you back on track. This weekend, spend $50 on our site, and we'll hook you up with a free Redcon 1 Patriot hoodie to celebrate the anniversary of B-Day. Spend $100, and we'll also add in a two-pound bottle of protein. Choose your product between our meal replacement, Emory Light, or Whey Isolate Isotope, or our vegan protein, Green Bray. Take it up a notch and spend $150 or more, and we'll throw in two boxes of our energy shot, FUBAR. Use the code DAY25 to save an additional 25% off the entire site. This weekend, we celebrate unity and love. Shop RedCon1.com right now and start saving while supplies last. Three journalists went missing today in the Central African Republic. Russian mercenaries at a recent briefing with press secretary and a ranching family. An American woman was abducted by an agricultural project in Romania. Her current whereabouts are unknown. CIA issued a statement today disavowing any knowledge of the whereabouts of former Navy SEAL sniper James Reese. back with Jack Carr, best, uh, New York Times bestselling author and uh, Navy SEAL for 20 years. And Jack, we're going to get into the books, man. So I have read, I'm, I'm almost done. I wish I, I, I was trying very, very hard to finish the book before the third book before tonight. And I'm, I'm very close, but I'm not 100% done. And uh, no worries. You over. He's done. Yeah, He's so, <laughs> that's it. Bye. <laughs> but man, I love the terminal list. And I didn't know, I didn't know really anything about you other than that you were uh, a SEAL and that few of the people that I'm friends with knew you and had worked with you and, and said good things. And I said, well, you know, one of the things that SEALs aren't too happy about is books, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the thing that was really interesting was that, that a lot of people were happy about your book and they thought that it was cool and they're excited for you. Um, so let's, let's start with that. Like there's a lot of books out there written by seals and, 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 uh, and a lot of the community is not happy with some of them. 
some were very unhappy with some of them and then <laughs> some of them were kind of like you know in between yeah but you have a lot of support yeah i know it's it's nice and uh you know i, I knew i wanted to do this also from a very early age but uh yeah seal age seven and then uh, a little bit later then i found i was like okay i was getting a lot of my information about seals about special operations about the intelligence community from the pages of fictional thrillers and my mom was a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books and this love of reading. And you can see the books behind me. I rarely, rarely, I never throw a book away. Or, uh, and if I gift one to somebody, uh, I'll get another one right away to replace it. Um, so I've just always loved, loved books. And I was reading guys probably in, in fifth grade is when Hunt for Red October came out by Tom Clancy. And uh, so I read that. And then I discovered David Morrell, who created the character Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood. And he had a great series in the 80s that started off with Brotherhood of the Rose and then Fraternity of the Stone, the League of Night and Fog, uh, Nelson DeMille's stuff, amazing, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. And I just loved reading. And I knew that one day after my time in the military, that I would then write thrillers. And so that was my plan. It was just boom, be a SEAL, want to do that. And then that's eventually at some point, write thrillers. So, so I knew exactly what I was, uh, what I was going to do, but, uh, yeah, it is, it's, it's, but even so, because before I went in, Richard Barcinko's book had come out a few years before, and I thought it was fantastic, right? Cause there wasn't that much, like you said, there was a few mentions here and there. There was a couple, a couple VHS or beta tapes that they had of Vietnam era seals. And I still have in a box somewhere. And they're talking about that stoner. So I just loved all that stuff so much. Uh, so when Richard Marcinko's book came out, I was like, Oh, this is awesome because I'd read the Delta, uh, Delta Force book by Charlie Beckwith, who created Delta Force uh, in the mid 80s and then early 90s. Richard Marcinko's book comes out. I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. But going into the SEAL teams, I kept my cards close. Like I didn't go into the SEAL teams. Uh, well, one, it wasn't a stepping stone. There were two separate things where I looked at them as two distinctly different things. But I also knew how some people and interestingly enough, it's mostly uh, and in every case, in my experience, uh, I'm sure there's some other ones out there, but uh, everyone that I knew that worked with him had a ton of respect for that guy yeah. um and it was people that didn't work for them this is a total unofficial poll right this is just me listening over the years uh it was the people that hadn't worked with him that uh said all the you know kind of made offhand comments or rolled their eyes or or whatever else and so because of that i kept my <laughs> my cards pretty close about what i was going to do eventually after my time in the military uh, and then of course as we got a little farther along there after september 11th then some books started coming out uh there was the movie act of valor of course that's you know the, that was greenlit by the military by the navy by naval special warfare um and then some more books came out and then there was a tipping point in there at some point where they did an all stop uh or tried to do an all stop anyway and put the genie back in the bottle but uh for me I look at it like, hey, just like anything else in life, there's going to be good movies. There are going to be not so good movies. Um, good restaurants, not so good restaurants. Good books, not so good books. Um, and some of those books will be written by SEALs. Um, and for me, growing up, I loved reading anything I possibly could uh, by SEALs, about SEALs, um, magazine articles, newspaper articles, uh, first-person accounts. And what people, I think, should realize, or my community anyway, that 
hey, you know, these first person accounts, that's that person's perspective. You know, Grant has his memoirs from the Civil War. Um, that's a first person account. Uh, and those accounts will be used later as that person's perspective, not as the end all be all, not as, as this is how it was. That is how it was from their perspective at whatever level that they were operating at. So there's value in that. And then for me, for my kids, I look at it like, hey, I'd much rather my kids be reading a book by uh, someone in the military talking about their experience or a mission they were on or uh, their their entire time in, whatever it is, their perspective on something, um, rather than, let's say, a biography on the Kardashians or something like that. You know, there's, uh, I think there's value. It's hard for kids to find heroes these days. There's so many inputs. Uh, they have almost less of a choice uh, about who they're going to look up to, who they're going to follow. Because back when when I was a kid, you had to search that stuff out. So I have a book over here, Bob, Bob, Black Sheep by Pappy Boynton. And uh, he was a Medal of Honor recipient. And he was a, there was a TV show about him in the late 70s, early 80s, where uh, Robert Conrad played him and uh, he's a marine fighter pilot in world war ii and i love that book i love that show i got to meet him before he passed away he signed the book for me uh you know what and that's his perspective on his time in uniform uh and that was extremely impactful for me but i had to seek that out my point being that today with all these inputs from instagram and tiktok and whatever else they're they're doing um and the influence their friends are having like no one influenced me other than my dad and my grandfather having served in world war ii a guy who didn't make it back um that you know that that's why i sought these people out these heroes out and uh, their accounts out and that's why i studied warfare um and today it's harder i think because you're so many inputs oh my friend's following so-and-so oh i should oh they're a loud voice oh that, that makes sense okay i get it's just different it, and it's and you're not seeking those out like we had to in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s um so that was a long answer to your question about <laughs> books in the SEAL teams, but I think it helps also that these are fiction. And uh, so this is not my perspective on a, a mission or on my time in uniform. I'm not trying to go back in the memory banks and remember what it was like in Ramadi 05, 06, or whatever else. It's, uh, this is fiction. And I think people also sense that it's a, it's a passion. And it's something that I was going to do no matter what or no matter who disapproved of it. Um, I love writing. I love creating. Uh, I've wanted to do this since I was a, a little kid. I've been thinking about it since then. Uh, and the, the third novel is actually the one I wanted to start with. Uh, it's a tribute to The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, which was a 1924 short story that I read in sixth grade. And I knew that one day I'd write a thriller that paid tribute to that short story. So I think it also helps that... Uh, that it's fiction and it's not me trying to go back because everyone has a different perspective and whether it's one person's truth through their nods at night in the midst of chaos is not necessarily someone else's perspective at night in chaos through nods. So it's uh, so you can see how there can be more people picking apart uh, what you're doing if you're writing something that's nonfiction. So I think this being fiction helped. Yeah. That's what I'd asked Aaron, you know, before I said, you know, cause I know there's this kind of a, unwritten rule of you don't make money on a trident but you know so i asked because it's fiction and it's just you're using your 20 plus years and as just context and it's not a tell-all you know i think that's where maybe you've you know garnered the support from the majority of people because they're not it's not a tell-all or it's not just your point of view of something it's just it your time again provided you context and it's fiction yeah, that's it. And it's, it's, uh, and that's a tough one, you know, not making money off the Trident. Like, what does that, that means to me, a guy that gets out and does you know, tactical, tactical training somewhere. Um, he's just going to talk about where he went to high school and then forget like the last 15 years and not talk about that. Like, 
okay, I guess. Um, and it's easier for people to also say those kind of things when they're in. And we had very senior level leaders that uh, wrote all sorts of emails, all sorts of memorandums, uh, all sorts of speeches about how horrible uh, the, you know, the seals in the spotlight are. And those are the same people in the rooms when they greenlighted doing active valor, by the way. But as soon as they got out, uh, have PowerPoint presentations as they go around giving a uh, leadership talks that have uh, them a lot of times uh, for those senior level guys in very clean uniforms taken behind the gates of a fob um, where they are essentially making money off the trident for things that they did not do. And uh, in journalists, you have a guy like that. I won't ruin it for anybody else. So you have a guy. <laughs> oh yeah. So some of this does bleed over into my novel. So they are very, they are intensely personal uh, um, on quite a few levels. <laughs> so making money off the trident, I have to make a point on that. I have, a, I have, uh, there's, I'm not going to mention the name of the, the team guy who had a big argument uh, with another team guy, which is not that unusual, believe it or not. And, um, <laughs> that the, the other team guy who was very critical of him making money off the Trident was a, a very prominent, I don't want to give the guy away. So um, he was in a very important role in business. And in, in his office, he had obviously memorabilia everywhere, Trident everywhere, all his, you know, his medals, he had everything everywhere, right? All over the walls of his office. And he was critical of the other guy saying, you're, you know, you're, you're disgraceful because you're making money off the Trident. But he's in this very high-powered office. Everything, the whole office is filled with the Trident, right? Basically <laughs> stuff with the Trident. And, and uh, I found that very interesting that he, that, that was, he was so critical. It's like, well, everybody comes into your office is seeing all this stuff, right? You you know, that's a big deal because you're in a very high position in a, a financial institution. And so people come there and you see all this stuff. Well, isn't that the same thing? Because you're 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 displaying it in a way that you should, if that's the case, you should have it nowhere, right? You should not display it anywhere. That's <laughs> Right. Yeah. If I shouldn't put it on your resume for business school or, you know, or in your job interviews, shouldn't probably mention it. Just say you did nothing for the last 15 years. But yeah. no, in all seriousness, they're probably, you know, there are, are tasteful ways to do things, appropriate ways to do things and then inappropriate ways to do things. And uh, where it gets complicated is what's appropriate to one person might not be for the other. And, you know, I, I spend almost zero time thinking about that sort of thing. Um, it's, you know, I see it in the background, obviously, because I always came from that that community and you, you hear things here and there. And um, but but it wasn't something uh, that I, you know, I thought about it as I was getting out and as I was writing that first novel. Um, but I, I'm just so drawn to writing. and I'm so passionate about it. The same way it's a calling. Like special operations was a calling. Writing was a calling. And I wasn't going to deny either one of those. Um, were you ever at one point, though, Jack, were you ever like, because I know that people are PNG. Do they put write a book? And they're like, that's it. Persona non grata right there. They're done. The community is done with them. Were you ever worried or did you know that your books were not a tell, as Eric said, a tell-all, so you didn't have that kind of concern? Yeah, no, I didn't waste any bandwidth thinking about that other than just, oh, you know, if they do it, okay, I guess, you know, I'm not, but I don't live in the past. Like, I don't right. live back there. Like, it was a good 20-year run. I got very fortunate to work with the guys that I did and to, to be able to be part of the things that I was a part of, um, but it's the past. Like, I don't live back there. Um, that is a part of me. It's a very, it's a, it's a very important part of me. Uh, hopefully it makes me a uh, better father, better husband, uh, better writer, better citizen of this country. Um, but that's what it is. It's, and I don't live back there. And I saw a lot of guys that were living in the past as I was getting ready to get out. And I started observing people that were in that process or had gone through that process a few years ago or on the outside now that couldn't let go of what they what they were and use it to become a better version of themselves going forward. Um, so I, I noticed that it was very evident to me and I made a decision 
to make a psychological and physical break with the military. So we moved up to the mountains to raise our kids in a, in a ski town rather than staying in the same, same location in, in Coronado, California, where I finished up. Um, but for me, it was just, uh, you know, it's, it's part of my, my journey, obviously a very important part of one of that journey. And I decided to get out when I finished up my final deployment to Iraq, where I was a task unit commander. So that would be the last time where I would ever have the opportunity to tactically lead guys on the battlefield. After that, yeah, you come back as a as a team co commander, as a, but really you're in the tactical operations center. And yeah, you're a leader, but you're a manager. Uh, you're not leading guys on the battlefield anymore. And yeah, you can have a big impact, but uh, but yeah, you're behind the gates of that fob. And if you go if you go out with the guys on a mission, you're pretty much just getting in the way, and they don't want you there because uh, you haven't done the workup with them. You just want to go out to say that you went out one night. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, it was important to make a make a clean break and move on and uh, and embrace this next chapter in life. And uh, I'm once again very fortunate to have known what I wanted to do for so long. And although I didn't think of it this way at the time, all that reading that I did growing up from those guys that I mentioned earlier. All those novels I read, those guys were my professors in the art of storytelling. Um, I found out about Joseph Campbell very early on in The Hero's Journey, and I applied that to what I was reading and what I was watching on the screen really all my life. And then I was also, in conjunction with that, studying warfare from a very early age and studying that, studying terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. Uh, and I continued to do that while I was in the teams as well, because every waking second had to be spent on me trying to make myself a better combat leader, uh, a better operator, because that's what I owed the guys. And if I did something downrange or I made a decision that cost someone their life, I wanted to make damn sure that I had done everything possible to be the best combat leader I possibly could up to that point. So, uh, it just as I was getting out, those things all came together. And I didn't plan it that way, but the, the education and the art of storytelling throughout my whole life, starting to read all those guys very early on and never stopping, uh, studying warfare throughout my life, never stopping. And then the experiences from Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, all that kind of came together as I was getting out at the right time and place. And I was able to apply all of it to the pages of these fictional thrillers. So uh, that wasn't like a grand plan from the very beginning. I looked at them as separate things. But now when I look back at it, I see how they all built upon one another to, to really to make these what they are today. And that's why they're resonating with people, I think. 100%, 100%. So in the beginning of uh, Savage Sun, you have a quote from uh, Most Dangerous Game that, I, that, I, that I've heard many times. And I, uh, I went back as soon as I read it in your book and reread Most Dangerous Game. Could you tell us, did you remember, uh, you don't have to be word for word, but you remember the quote and, uh, and tell us a little bit about Most Dangerous Game before we talk about Savage Sun. So the quote's really from uh, from Hemingway. That's what we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, there is no hunting like the hunting of man, and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it never care for anything else thereafter. And uh, interestingly enough, just a couple weeks ago, it was Carlos Hathcock's uh, birthday. And on my Instagram and stuff, I like to go back. And if it's someone's birthday that uh, influenced me at some point along the way, uh, I'll highlight that, talk a little bit about them, uh, whether it's an author or someone in the military. And Carlos Hathcock was a Marine sniper in Vietnam who uh, up until, well, yeah, he had uh, the most confirmed kills for a while. And I think now there's some other data out there, but anyway, he did a great job. Um, and there was a book called uh, Marine Sniper that came out when I was in either junior high or, or high school. And because it was his birthday the other day and I posted a little bit about him and his background, uh, I grabbed that off the shelf and I had not opened that book since I don't know, the late eighties. And I opened it up and that quote was in there. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that same quote uh, starts 
Marine Sniper. Uh, Charles Henderson is the author, but uh, it's absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I was like shocked to see that. It was incredible. But uh, but yeah, Most Dangerous Game was a 1924 short story that really, uh, it's a story about the hunting of man, and uh, it explores really the dark side of man through that hunter-hunted dynamic, which is what I wanted to explore in the pages of my third novel, and do that by incorporating some of my experience from both hunting animals and hunting humans, because there are a lot of similarities in establishing that pattern of life. The same thing you do for someone downrange. It's kind of like putting trail cameras up here and figuring out when, uh, when that buck you're after comes by, what's that pattern? Uh, same thing downrange. If you're looking for that person, you found that person, you're establishing a pattern of life. So you know where they're going to be, when they're going to be there. And then you can plan your hit around that to, uh, be the most advantageous, uh, time and place. Uh, it's a time and place that you're choosing that, that that's ideally how it goes. Um, so, so yeah, all that, uh, all that came into play, but, uh, most dangerous game was, uh, it was a huge influence on me. And, uh, as were a few other novels like first blood and, and, uh, rogue male and, uh, last of the breed where those, those, those are the four that really impacted, uh, the pages of savage sound the most. So Jack, one of the things that I've noticed is that in your books, you, you really truly use not only the, the things you've experienced, but also the people that, you know, the things that, you know, how do you use that information to develop characters and develop a plot line? I mean, is that something you think of beforehand? Like, or is that something you, as, as you go, you're like, okay, this is the gun that I use, the gear that I use with my friend that I have, or is it something you think of previous before you even start writing? Yeah, some of it's beforehand, some of it just comes as I go. But what was most surprising is that when I sat down to write that first one, I thought, oh, it's just going to be a great escape. You know, it's going to be a story people can, as they're going through the airport, they see it on the shelf, they grab it out of Hudson News, they get on their flight or to, I don't know, vacation or whatever and read it on the beach. Um, and I didn't realize until I actually started writing how personal, personal of a journey it was going to be for me. And it continues to be that way. Um, and when I started to, really put my fingers to that keyboard then right away as soon as i did that i was like oh wow this is going to be this is going to be uh, an intensely personal journey not that uh, i'm taking exact things that happened to me and just moving them over into the book and changing some names around no it's really the feelings and emotions behind things that i was involved with uh, over my 20 years in the teams and taking those the experience but taking the emotion behind those experiences and then applying that to the protagonist of a fictional narrative. So when people read it, if it reads raw and visceral and primal, it, that's because the emotions are real. Those are authentic and real emotions that I felt at some point, and I've just taken them and then applied them to a fictional narrative. And I think that's why it stood out to Simon & Schuster as well, because I don't know how many thousands of books like this they see every year, and they pick like one, and they picked mine. And I think it's because of that emotion. And it's not me interviewing a sniper to say, how did it feel to press that trigger in this time and place? Or, you know, what did it feel like before, during, after? And then me as an author and interviewer taking notes on that and then applying my filter of my experience to it, whatever my background might be, and then taking it and applying it to a fictional narrative. Uh, no, I didn't need to go through that stage because I was taking my experience and those emotions that I felt and applying them directly. So I think that's really what made it stand out to Simon & Schuster and why it's resonating with readers because they do sense that. They can sense that those emotions and those feelings come from somewhere real and that, uh, that differentiates it a little bit in the space. Jack, so you, you mentioned uh, it being from personal experiences and you mentioned, actually mentioned being cathartic and, and therapeutic. So when you're, I, I guess I have two questions. One, 
you said being emotional. Do, do you like laugh and cry during writing this thing? And then uh, do you do you think that it's good for you mentally to have to go through this process? Yeah, I think it's absolutely answer the first one. For last question first, I think absolutely therapeutic in a positive way in that uh, I was very lucky also, very lucky downrange to have uh, the decisions I made turn out okay. And it can go the other way too. You can make the exact right decision if we're doing something on a whiteboard and how what you should do in a certain situation when you're in an, in an environment like this and we're talking about it in an office and we're nice and comfy and, and all that stuff and no one's trying to, to kill us. Well, you can make the right decision and it can still go south. So for whatever reason, uh, I was very fortunate and things uh, worked out. So I, I sleep very well at night, but uh, I can also see how it, even if you make the right decisions and things go south, how you can have a hard time dealing with that. But uh, regardless, combat, is an intensely emotional experience and being able to take that whether it's a good experience bad experience whatever you have but take that and then apply it in a positive way to whatever you're doing going forward and for me it's uh, i'm very close to it because i'm writing about people that are doing the same sorts of things but for me that was very therapeutic just to take an experience and turn it into a positive uh and some of the experiences weren't that great like uh getting getting interrogated about uh by ncis or whatever like that the when you read that in the terminal list like that really kind of happened and i just turned it into a positive and uh applied all the things that i was feeling to what the protagonist is feeling in the terminal list when the same thing is happening to him albeit in the fictional sense um so so i think it was very therapeutic um to to be able to to do that um and what was the first question i've now lost my was was uh, you laugh and cry right oh yeah so i do get emotional when i write and i think what if eventually i get to a book or to a uh, a project where that doesn't happen then i think i'm gonna have to take a step back and be like okay why was I so emotional about the first books? And now I'm on book eight or 10. And now I'm just kind of writing. And now it's just a story. And I'm not, I'm not laughing. I'm not crying. My eyes aren't getting watery. Um, so it has to be something that I want to read. That's because first I'm a fan, having grown up with these different books. And it's really the magic that I'm trying to capture from those books I read growing up. And that's what I'm trying to, to capture for, for another generation and hopefully i'm moving the genre forward just by a little bit whether you know just i think that's that's the goal is to always yeah just do it a little better next book a little better and then move the genre as a whole forward by a just by a degree like that's my that's my goal but uh it's uh yes i so i do get emotional and that tells me that hey this is probably pretty good um because i'm laughing my eyes are getting watery uh i like this like this is good uh, because I know it. I didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to try this writing thing and see if I can make some money at it. Who else writes in this space? Oh, let me read some of these other novels. Oh, I can do that. Like, like, that's not it at all. Like, it's a part of me. All those books I read growing up, they are a part of me. They're close to me, uh, which is why I still have them. Um, and so, so I do. Yeah, I do get emotional. And I think it'll be a, a key for me that if that doesn't happen for a certain book or a project or whatever, or a chapter, paragraph that that would have maybe hit me in the past if i'm not emotional about it then i'll say okay why not i need to recalibrate what's going on here and get back to that magic yeah it's almost like that it just becomes a job right you're just doing this job to make money or whatever and then you're probably not going to be nearly as good at it if you just do the job right? i mean that's how it is for us if we don't give a shit about what we're doing it's just about making the sale and selling the next settlement and that's what it's all about to add money to the bank account you just, it's almost like a, a natural thing that if you're just doing something for money, it's just not, it's never going to be as good as if you're doing it for a, a real reason. And, and with that in mind, 
you have with Eternalist and probably I would imagine True Believer and uh, Savage Son, you have created something that's more than books. You've created, obviously, you know, your your own brand, your own business that you, me and you talked about before this uh, interview. But you've also had a lot of interest from, you know, uh, Chris Pratt, I know, uh, is uh, somebody close to you and that you're going to be the executive producer of the series, the TV series on the book. Yeah. Um, that mean to you and where is it going to go after this yeah so crazy so even growing up like i always thought yeah i'm going to write these novels they're going to get picked up by a major new york publishing house uh they're going to be movies or later on like oh maybe a series on amazon uh so it was always just part of the vision like part of what was going to happen um and i didn't waste any time worrying about them not happening uh all the way to the point of Picking Chris Pratt as I'm writing the first one as a guy who would be so great at playing this character. And I thought of Chris back then, even before I knew him, before he had done anything serious, uh, before Passengers, before any of the Jurassic Parks, before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Superstardom for him. And I thought, you know, this is a guy that uh, he had a small role in Zero Dark Thirty about the Bin Laden raid where he played a SEAL. And he was on Parks and Rec. And you could tell that he was a likable guy and i thought you know what who's that guy that's kind of like tom hanks was in the 80s when he did all those movies and all then the tv show uh wasn't buddies uh, it was like, all comedies right everything he that's what he was known for was comedy in the 80s and then early 90s he takes a risk and he takes a risk with philadelphia and from then on out he can choose any project he wants and he's one of the greatest actors of his generation and i thought who's that guy that's likable that does some comedy that uh needs to do something a little more gritty and he played a seal in zero dark 30 okay this is the guy and so i just had him in my head from the beginning uh as someone who could play this role and who might need to play this role but to do something that that stretches him a little bit that uh that challenges him a little bit and uh he was always the only person i thought of same thing with the director with anton fuqua i thought Who's the guy, best guy to direct this? And that's all I thought about. Um, that's the director. And now they're both doing this. Uh, and both incredible guys. And of course, Anton Fuqua got uh, Oscar for Training Day, did Tears of the Sun, did Shooter, which was awesome, based on the book Point of Impact by Stephen Hunter, uh, did Magnificent Seven, so he'd already worked with Chris in the past, uh, did Equalizer movies, just a fantastic guy. So uh, it's in good hands. And uh, yeah, I feel extremely fortunate. So for, you know, you brought up all this stuff that you had thought of and everything. So visualization, uh, when I was a kid, you know, uh, the first person I really heard of doing anything like that was Arnold Schwarzenegger and he would look into the mirror. You know, I've been a bodybuilding fan. Eric too has been a bodybuilding fan since we're kids. So we're children, you know, since Arnold did like, the, you know, Oh yeah. You know, and predator, oh, right? Yeah. I can't do it from this angle. And, uh, Ultimate bodybuilding over there somewhere. Yeah. Back in the day. Yeah. From, from seven that, to 10, let's do it. From, from then to now, you know, that, that Arnold has been uh, a hero for us. So I've had the yeah. good, good fortune of meeting him. And, oh, awesome. and uh, Chris Pratt had the good fortune of marrying his daughter. So, <laughs> uh, but um, I, yeah, I've always thought about what he said and what he would, what he would do as, a, as a, a young man was visualize and he'd look at the mirror and he'd pose and he wouldn't look at what he was seeing in the mirror. He'd look at what he wanted to see. He'd look at mm. visualizing the physique that he wanted. So he would look at his arm and say, Okay, I'm imagining it to be this big. I'm imagining this to be like this, and, and so on and so forth. And that visualization, and this is a common theme these days, right? It's not as unusual to hear somebody say, I visualize the success. But Arnold was in my in my mind anyway. I don't know anybody before him that I thought of and knew of that was visualizing what he wanted to become or, or thinking about and uh every day imagining it. And it inspired me because when I had 
bad times and I knew where I wanted to be, I thought about and made a list and looked at it all the time, where I wanted to be, where I wanted to go, where I, what, I, what I visualized my future to be. And it sounds like, you know, you basically use that method to, to you know, make your reality, right? Will it into the universe. You willed it. You willed it into reality. Yeah. And it wasn't something I did by design. I didn't think of, you know, I'm going to visualize success. Like they say, you know, like visualize crossing that tape in track and field or whatever they told us in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade running track. Uh, so I never thought of it in those terms, but I did it. And it was just natural thing for me to do. And I've never thought of it in these terms until you just asked me right now about it. But uh, yeah, growing up, you know, I looked at myself in the mirror and I pictured a special operator. I pictured what I was what I was working towards, even if I was just doing hill sprints outside and I was just then running down and climbing a rope and then jumping on the uh, our pull-up bar uh, that was part of a jungle gym in the backyard. Uh, you know, I was picturing myself training on a military obstacle course. Like it was just, it was just natural. I didn't say time to visualize running through that obstacle course. It was just a natural thing to always do. Uh, and I, I guess I naturally visualize myself as an author one day, uh, getting published by a major New York publishing house. And, but I didn't do it. Like I'm going to sit down, I'm gonna do my meditation. I'll journal, I'll, uh, have my tea, uh, I'll visualize where I want to go. Like, no, <laughs> none of that. Uh, never any time for that sort of thing. I'm sure it's very helpful though. Uh, but no, it's just like a natural thing that, uh, didn't take any extra effort on my part to do because I was already naturally doing it. I think. Sometimes that's the biggest thing is that, you know, to say, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to manifest my arms to be huge, or I'm going to manifest this book to happen, or I'm going to manifest Chris Pratt to do, you know, sometimes the people that are the best at this, I'm sure Arnold didn't think I want my caps to be look like this. It just happened. And so after the fact, you know, not saying that you can't, you can't create it. If you, if you, you know, you may need to put yourself in that situation. And a lot of people have asked me about business and the success where they say, well, if that's not my nature, how do I do it? I, I always tell them fake it till you make it because before you know it, that faking the, the the belief in yourself or whatever it is can manifest. I do believe that if you think it enough and and you practice that enough, it becomes a reality. But for a lot of people, that is, uh, I, I always believe that's second nature and it's something that's a, almost a genetic thing where you are doing it by nature and that creates the manifestation to whatever you're, whatever you're shooting for. So for, for you guys, for you and and, and Chris Pratt and all the things that you manifested, where does that take you? Like, how does the, how does this, this show look, the, the terminal list uh, TV show, what does that, what does that look like for you and, and the future yeah. of the show? No, it's, it's crazy. Uh, and just real quick, before I get into that, it's uh, like just the visualization or thinking about it, like that's going nowhere without the work, right? Like if Arnold's not in there doing those squats, he's not in there doing those curls, well, you can visualize all he wants and nothing's going to happen. Uh, so it's all about doing the work, uh, especially for when that opportunity knocks, like you're ready. Uh, but you put in that work so that you can capitalize on momentum when it's appropriate. Uh, if you're on the battlefield, you look for gaps uh, in the enemy's defenses and exploit those gaps. Um, so you're doing all those things, but it's all about putting in the work so you're prepared um, and you have that foundation covered. Um, so that's that's that piece. But um, yeah, the series is crazy because usually they want to get rid of the author right away when they do some sort of a, a deal because they don't want that author in the corner saying, you ruined my vision, you know, or something like that. Like, that's not how this would go. And you're just kind of a pain. And that's how most people in Hollywood, that's most of their experience with authors. Um, now for me, Chris wanted me involved because um, we got to know each other and um, he's just a fantastic guy, but he wants to keep this gritty, wants to keep it authentic, 
real, the same things that made the book a success, he wants those incorporated into the series. So um, I helped with the uh, pilot. So what happens is you come up with a pilot episode and then with a screenwriter showrunner, and then the director, uh, the star, and the the showrunner take that to Amazon, to Netflix, to Showtime, to Apple, to Disney, whatever, and then they do their pitch, and uh, so that's kind of how that goes down. So I was intimately involved with that pilot episode, and it's awesome. Like it could, I'm so happy. And the way they wanted to take it was to be more of a psychological thriller, which I think is a great way to tell this story. So instead of just political thriller or action movie, whatever, uh, a, a psychological thriller in that the protagonist, James Reese, played by Chris, is not a reliable storyteller because of the drugs the government has given him, because of TBI, traumatic brain injury, uh, post-traumatic stress, like these things are all weighing. And so in visually telling a story, the audience can't tell if his memory is is legit, if it, if, if it was a real memories or not. And that's the direction that uh, that they took it as far as visually telling the story. And I think it's amazing. So right now it's uh, it's sold to Amazon and Amazon, uh, it'll be an eight to 10 part series. And we're starting to, they're at the writer's room together. Of course, it's all via Zoom now. So now they put the writer's room together, which is like, I think about eight people. And then, yeah, I advise on those scripts and um, they send them to me and I'll take out the red pen and send them back and see if we can make this the best it can possibly be. But it's, uh, I feel very fortunate to, to be involved and I'm, I'm learning a ton. It's awesome. It's awesome. So I'm a, a humongous reader, uh, a voracious reader, and, you know, I do my best. You know, Eric and I are very busy here with the business, and it seems like I have three, like I said, we have three, I have three little kids. He's got two kids, and so we're very busy, but I do my best to read an hour or two, more like an hour lately, every night, nice. and uh, I do my best. I have a few books that I'm reading at any one time. Um, for you... So what's something surprising that, I mean, maybe a tip that you have for people out there or somebody that you love that you think people should read and also the most surprising thing, like, do you love, do you love like romance novels or something? Is there something people like, whoa. No, it's great. Uh, but interesting you asked about that. There's a, there's a romance novelist named Desiree Holt that uh, she's been such a great supporter. And uh, in her last two books, she's uh, she's written a, like a paragraph about how I inspired a character in, uh, in a couple novels. So uh, if people are interested, they can go look up Desiree Holt. She has a whole ton of books out there like that. But uh, yeah, not my, <laughs> it's not really my usual genre. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the book that I, that, uh, I recommend the most and that uh, impacted me probably the most is this one right over here. Rabbit. It's Once an Eagle. Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. And uh, this is really, it's a historical fiction, but it's uh, also a case study in leadership. And it follows two guys from pre-World War One up until Vietnam. And one's enlisted, one's an officer. And in World War One, the enlisted guy gets a battlefield commission because of his actions. And uh, the political guy throughout the story is always just like one step ahead of the guy that has a battlefield commission. But uh, it's a fantastic uh, book. It's kind of Thick, so you can use it as a weapon or a doorstop if you need to. Um, and I used to give this to my guy, the guys in my platoon, um, and I'd write a letter that would go in the front explaining uh, why I thought it was important that they read it. And then I'd say at the end of that, that, hey, I'm not going to tell you talk about this anymore, but when you get to the end, there's another letter. And I'd have another letter that's sealed in the back. So to get to that one, they had to read the entire book and then open what would be my take on what they just read. So they're not polluted by that ahead of time. So that's, uh, that's my most 
my most gifted book and uh, the one that uh, I think is probably the most valuable for someone to read at a couple different stages in their life, like junior high, if they're interested in the military uh, or high school, uh, college, uh, or if they haven't read it yet while they're in. Um, people who are in have not, have not read this, don't delay. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's my favorite. What, what about a 40 year old business owner? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I've, I've gifted it to uh, to many um, business owners uh, out there since I've gotten out, and uh, and yeah, it does take some investment of time though. It's a it's a serious undertaking. That's <laughs> uh, okay. I haven't read it. Uh, Anton should thank you. Anton's uh, reaping the benefits of your. Uh your recommendations and gifting, huh? Well, his estate is probably, it was written in 1968 and it's a, uh, it's, I think it's a, it, it's more like an anti-war novel almost if you read it through the lens of when it was written um, and, and you apply that to the narrative as you're going through. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic and it might not, uh, I don't know, your conclusion at the end, uh, there's a couple of different ways to look at it and that's what my letter was all about at the end. So uh, two more, two more questions and we're going to let you go, Jack. Um, and we'll go to the next one, the Joe Rogan show. So Joe Rogan is like the biggest thing ever at this point. I mean, you know, we, uh, we, we talked about him on the first episode uh, of this show, two episodes ago, it wasn't that long ago, um, was, uh, about him moving to Spotify and how big a deal he is. And I've seen him live twice. We're supposed to see him live a third time. We have a suite at the bb and center that Redcon does. We're all excited to go see Joe and uh, bring all the so so the the cool thing of the suite is that we'd bring we bring employees so it's more like a team building thing usually and, and nice. we have all the events it's, it's it's really awesome or it was awesome anyway <laughs> for a little while we'll but uh, eventually we'll be back there and um, we I love Joe and I think he's a great guy and and very very interesting guy and what makes him so unique is he's cerebral he's funny but he's cerebral so he's smart and he's a good thinker. And uh, he had you on, and I uh, wanted to hear about the experience, the Joe Rogan experience, right? And then, uh, and then, what has that done for you? How many people actually saw it and have spoken to you uh, since? Oh yeah, no, Joe's an amazing guy. We met each other a couple of years ago because uh, I'm also involved in a uh, hunting operation out in Lanai, Hawaii, uh, called Pineapple Brothers, and he's been out there uh, a few times for axis deer and, and mouflon sheep. So uh, we've known each other for a couple of years now. We hunted here in Utah. Uh, last year together for elk and uh yeah just a, what a fantastic guy and once again circle back to that uh that authenticity piece like no one controls him he doesn't work for cbs he doesn't work for uh for fox news or cnn or whatever like he it's his own deal and uh and that's part of the deal with spotify it remains his own deal no one in corporate is telling him what he can and can't do which is why there's a gym an archery range and a garage and a sauna right off his podcast studio uh because there's no lawyer telling him that he can't do that um and so he does so that resonates with people once again it's that authenticity piece like everybody knows whether you agree or not that those strings aren't being pulled by anyone or any other entity uh which makes it powerful and it's also also a threat i mean it's a threat to established media and yeah he was early in in the in the podcast game he recognized that he's so i mean he's he is a smart guy and just a fantastic guy um but he recognized saw that opportunity early on and uh and took advantage of it and now look where he is and look at that power that that show has and it is definitely a threat to established media whose audiences are uh, essentially they're, they're dying off. Um, and being on that show is amazing. Um, super cool to go out there. Of course, the whole experience is, is fantastic, but it introduced 
the books to a whole nother set people that would never have found me or the books any other way. Um, and kind of like before I did the podcast, like leading up to the publication of this third novel, um, it's not a good time. Like it's, uh, it's mid April, probably the height as far as uncertainty goes surrounding coronavirus. People just didn't know, uh, personal finances, businesses, what that meant for their families, like health wise, business wise. It was, a, it was probably one of the most uncertain weeks. And that's when Savage Sun came out. So kind of ahead of that, I was like, oh man, I wish, I wish Joe would ask me on that podcast. That could help. Um, and it didn't happen until after it made the New York Times list. Same thing with the, uh, the announcement by Chris. Like I was kind of like, oh man, I wish Chris would hold up that book <laughs> like, during this first week. This is an important week. This is the New York Times week. And, uh, and it didn't happen. Uh, and did you call him and ask him or did you just like sit back and hope? No, I, I, you know, you, you want to do things that are appropriate and you don't want to abuse relationships. Um, so no, I did not ask. Um, uh, maybe I should have, but I don't know. I just didn't. It worked out. It worked out for you. Yeah. And so now looking back, I'm so glad that it did, that I did not get, and Fox News still, for whatever reason, won't, uh, refuses to have me on for some reason. I don't know why. But, uh, so I didn't get on Fox and Friends, which would be a good one. Uh, didn't have the Joe Rogan podcast ahead of time. Did not have the Chris Pratt announcement ahead of time. All three things, which would be, be very important to reach audiences and to get those numbers up for during that first week of launch. None of them happened. And it's the height of the pandemic. So leading up to that launch, I had to do a total shift, I had to look at it like I would on the battlefield and say, okay, uh, things have changed. The operating environment has changed. It's not what it was. If I remain static, uh, this thing is not going to sell. Um, how do I launch this in a way that's appropriate during a time when so many people are hurting? Uh, so I came up with this complete campaign plan and Simon and Schuster had never seen anything like this. Like they can't say, well, in the last in the pandemic of 92, this is what we saw. Like, no, that there was nothing and no one knew what to do. So, um, I just looked at it. Hey, how do I adapt to this changing environment and launched a few different campaigns with, uh, different people in the outdoor space. Uh, you guys were so helpful. That was awesome. Uh, and, uh, hunting hunters. So it's all came this word of mouth thing through relationships, like natural ones that I've had over the years with like six sour pistols and PSE archery and gator sunglasses or whatever else. And also trying to help independent bookstores, like bookstores are hurting. They had no foot traffic. Uh, so I came up with this little, uh, book plate, which are signed things that go inside of books for collectors. And the only place you could get them was at independent bookstores that were also adapting, trying to remain open, trying to figure out how to do home deliveries to people. They were still shipping. Uh, they were trying to reach audiences to let them know, Hey, you don't have to just call Amazon. We're here too. And, uh, and, and here is a place where you can get a signed book where there's not a book tour because of COVID-19. So it was, I had to do a total shift as far as marketing and all the rest of it. And anyway, this was a long way of saying, I'm very happy that none of those big things came in because now no one can say, oh, you just got the New York Times list because you were on Fox and Friends, or you just got it because Rogan had you on the podcast, or you just got it because Chris Pratt optioned it. And uh, that week he held up the book and told people it was so great. Yeah, none of that happened. So now I'm so proud of the fact that it was really a grassroots, like word of mouth effort uh, from hunters, from tactical shooters, uh, readers who told a friend uh, whether they had one person that follows them on social media or they have a million people. Uh, so, so that I'm, I'm, that, that, so now looking back, I'm very happy that things worked out the way they did. Yeah. Well, I mean, for, for, for us, I showed Eric here when you sent the, the, the pre-reading copy or whatever, pre, uh, pre-sales copy, the marketing. So I'm, I'm obviously a fan of 
of marketing in general. I mean, I'm a student of it. I'm a fan of it. And uh, we loved the packaging. It was very easy to post about it. You know, one of the things that I thought was, we both thought was super cool was uh, not only the stickers you put in it and, the, and the, obviously the quality sure. of the book, but uh, in the quality of the box, but it was awesome how every weapon and every vehicle that was used in the book is also on the box. I mean, yeah, the branding that went into it, because typically with books, you don't no, it doesn't you happen. don't see that type of um, media kit that goes out with, you know, no, like you say never. it is someone holding up the book or it's, you know, someone else promoting it where you became your own self-promotion. And that, you know, I have instant recognition with it now. And I'm sure for people who served, there's some borrowed memory structure instantly. It's like, oh, what is that? And yeah, I thought it was like, especially too. I mean, I don't think anybody in the book space thinks that way. No. So it was definitely, I think a lot of brands could learn from that little kit you sent out. Yeah. It was definitely a great launch kit. Well, appreciate that. Yeah, I did it for True Believer, the second one also. That was, I didn't do it for the first one, but for the, the second one, did that worked out really well. And I went back and looked at, okay, I sent out really those early copies in that branded packaging. And then I looked at them like, okay, this next time around, the lessons learned from that is, okay, do it closer to the actual time of launch and send out, um, yeah, you send out a few of those early copies like that, but then send out the hardback copies so that people are hit that first week, that first week that's so important to the New York Times list, they're seeing it from different people. So like Dom's opening it and uh, Katie Pavlich is opening it and uh, Max Theriot's opening it from SEAL Team. And like, you know, it just helps that uh, it helps other people help you. Uh, and then it became this thing that people can't get anywhere that want people so many direct messages like, hey, can I buy one of those from you? How do I get one of those? And, you know, it's not like that. Like I sent them out to people that have one follower, but were you know what? They were like a, one of the first people on the bandwagon. And to that one follower, they held up the book, the first book, when no one knew who I was at all and said, this is so great. I'm so thoroughly enjoying this. And so, you know what? That person gets one. Uh, as does Chris Pratt with 28 million people. Uh, so, and everybody in between. Um, but I thought of, you know, how when I get my iPhone, yeah, I could get that iPhone in a little manila envelope. It's yeah. the same dang iPhone, but you know what? It comes in a package that it's an experience to open. And I think Steve Jobs delayed one of the computers coming out because the shade of white is gray was a tiny bit off. And hardly maybe any people would have noticed, but he noticed and they delayed the launch of that computer so they could get that color right. Uh, so I wanted opening these things to be an experience, an experience that people could share. And uh, it became a, it's a, it's a lot of work also to address all those things and get them out there. So it's kind of crazy. It's, it's once again, this isn't just writing. And once I, when I started, I thought it was, uh, as I was getting out of the military, I thought it's just writing. We're going to move up to park city. I'll be in a cabin. I'll be writing. I'll send it to New York. And that's about it. Well, no, it's a business like any other, and it's a startup, more importantly, at this phase. And that means you have to be adaptable. You have to take advantage of those emerging opportunities, uh, which is why my schedule is so crazy, because uh, I wasn't at that stage yet where I could say no to things, uh, or I could afford to miss an opportunity because I wasn't on the ball. Uh, so it, you have to do all the same things if you were starting a, a coffee shop or a supplement company or whatever you're starting. Uh, you have to do all the branding, co-branding, the marketing, the advertising, the social media, the budgeting, uh, and you have to have a fantastic product. Like All of those things go into it. So, um, and, and that's just fascinating to me because it's something that I, I, it's new to me. I love learning and, uh, I always want to do something just a little bit better each and every time. So it's, uh, it, it's been a good journey. You know, it's, that's probably especially true for writing, uh, novels now. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I know I can imagine, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that very, very few of those things were a factor, but now it's like a, 
that's a major thing and, and marketing and, and being a brand and, and developing demand is part of your job. You know, Simon Schuster's going to do this much, right? But they're not going to do everything. And, uh, and it's up to you to drive demand and make it popular, make it uh, in demand. That's right. And they, I look at it as they gave me a shot. They, they gave me a shot and that they don't owe me anything is how I looked at it. And I heard a lot of authors talking about, cause you, you know, you read things and you're looking online and you're hearing people talking, you're just kind of observing and figuring things out. Uh, I heard a lot of authors talking about what their publisher doesn't do for them, what their agent doesn't do for them. And I thought, you know what, these people don't owe me anything. I owe them because they took a risk on a complete unknown. Um, and they have to allocate resources, just like anything. Uh, everybody, uh, like we have to allocate resources down line. There's two firefights out there. Uh, you have one QRF there. Somehow they're in the same area. Well, who gets that? Uh, you know, you have to allocate resources uh, to make the most effective and efficient use of those resources, finite resources. Uh, so for me, I, th I thought, you know what? They don't owe me a thing and I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to prove to them that they made a good choice. Uh, so, and I, I still think that way today. I think it's a smart way of thinking. We, we talk about that when our business, our retail partners, I mean, their job is to just, it's to put it on the shelf. Our job is to create all the demand to pull it off. So yeah, I think it's a great way of thinking because, you know, a lot of people, I think they get a deal and it's like, Oh, hands off the wheel. That's it. But you know, yeah, no, you got to be in there and that's what people want. Like people want that connection and you know what? 1985, I didn't know when the next David Morrell novel was going to come out. I had no idea. Gosh, I would have loved to have known if it was going to be a year or two years or two and a half years. I'd love to know about his process, like how he created Rambo. How did he create this, this next series, Brotherhood of the Rose? And like, none of that. You got nothing. So you were a lot more reliant on the publisher back then um, for their marketing and, and all the rest of it. But uh, today, it's I look at it like it's my general store. Like this is the, the positive side of social media is that I get to thank everyone who took a risk on me and I get, to, I act like it's a, a small town general store and people coming in. If they, if they don't act appropriately, I can use the block. Like in that small town general store, you could take them and toss them out on the street. Um, but if someone comes in, they're asking you for directions. They're not even buying anything. You know, you still want them to have a good experience. You want to be a good person and point them in the, in the right direction. And you know what? Maybe as they're leaving, maybe they do tell somebody else, oh man, I went to that store and they were so great. They want to be back to the interstate, whatever. Uh, or someone comes in and wants to just buy a six pack. Uh, you know, you treat, I try to treat people on social media the same way I would if I was behind that counter of my own shop. And that was a local general store in Midtown America. And so I kind of look at it that way. Um, of course, there are, <laughs> there's, there's, there's some negatives to social media as well, but I try to focus on the, on the positives and in uh, building that readership and offering something of value and not just holding up the book and saying, oh, time, it's, it's book launch week again. Um, but no, it's about offering something of value throughout that whole year. And before I post something, oh, I always stop and think, hey, is this adding value? to the someone who has trusted me with their most valuable asset, which is their time. If they're scrolling through and they're following me, uh, I have a, or I'm, I owe them something. I owe them, I don't, I'm not going to waste their time. And so I say, what value am I bringing to this person that's trusted me with that time? So I try to look at it in that respect too. Yes. So Jack, um, before we let you go, um, Johnny's going to pull up a few questions from the question and answer segment. The, the best Johnny, you have a lot of pressure as we, we went long with Jack. I know he's going to get back to book four, but uh, let's because uh, he is he is he's under pressure. This is not a, this is not the typical process that I have thought of in the past. Where like the, the author writes whenever he wants and whenever it comes to him, Jack's got to like knock these things out because he's got pressure. People want to they they have already read this the third one. I'm almost done, and I mean 
Especially, Jack, I'm going to be done in a few days. So when is the next one coming out? I mean, I- That's right. April 2021. So you have a little bit of time, but then it gets crazy because you're editing one, you're writing the next one, you're doing the marketing. Like you're, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty, it's pretty fast paced. A lot more than I thought. Oh yeah. Much, much I'm sure much, much longer than I thought. How your, has your family reacted to all this new I- instant, instant fame? Yeah. Well, I think they're kind of like, um, Hey, I thought when we got out of the SEAL teams that, uh, that pendulum was going to swing back. Uh, so, so it's something I definitely struggle with is being, uh, 100, like being present when I'm actually present and not thinking about that problem I'm trying to solve on the written page that I was just in the middle of downstairs and oh, it's time for dinner and I got to run up, but oh, I'm on a roll and oh, but wait, I'm just about to figure this problem out. The protagonist was just going to figure out how to get out of this situation and uh, I got to get upstairs. And then I need to figure out how to switch back to uh, being dad, being 100% present, and then figure out how to get back down there when that time's done and flip that switch back. So it's kind of similar to being in the teams uh, in, the, in your home. Uh, you want to kind of flip that switch back to realizing that, hey, you know, a mortar is probably not going to land on my head tonight in this house. Like it could, but probably not. And that's something you're thinking about or that could happen at any point when you're downrange. So six months. Anytime you're walking around, you could get vaporized at any second. Uh, and when you come home, you got to kind of make that metal shift to, you know what, that piece of trash over there, that's probably not an ID. It's probably actually trash here on the street in Coronado, California. Um, and that's that's tough to do sometimes. So, Jack, uh, Ryan is reposting a, a question from a, a past viewer asking, he said you were in class 212. Was that the hardest steel training class ever? <laughs> well, I think that the next class was a little harder because they rolled me into that. I think they they saw that I was just having it too easy in 212. So I had to get, get rolled to 213 where they turned the heat back on again. Uh, so I'm pretty sure it was 213 that was the, the hardest one. Is he, now, are they asking this? Is somebody asking this because that was the lowest amount of graduates percentage wise <laughs> no it's because andy stump always talks about how we were in class together through hell week and then uh two weeks after hell week i got rolled for some shin splints and so he uh he refuses to ever let that go uh, <laughs> and, I, and i say the only reason i got shin splints andy is because i was carrying you on my back for those first few weeks and uh, i've never quite recovered so andy andy went to green team did you ever consider going to green team or did you try uh you know we had a thing that happened with our son and uh i, I would Anyway, so so we have a special needs child, and that pretty much made the decision for me that it was time to get out. And uh, but yeah, I, I would have loved to have gone there and done that, but that's just not it wasn't in the cards. Yeah, 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 I hear you. I hear you. Jack says uh, he asked Ryan says this is just repeating an earlier question. Your favorite drink, whiskey, beer, bourbon. I'm a vodka guy. What do you like? Uh, interesting. So I like this Rendezvous Rye, which is right back here from High West. So these local guys, I think they kind of got, they bought out by somebody recently, but uh, yeah, Rendezvous Rye, poof, that's a good one right there. Um, but yeah, I'm into the whiskeys and the bourbons these days, just uh, just on the rocks. Um, that's kind of my my go-to these days. And then uh, but usually, yeah, a glass of wine also with my wife on the couch at the end of the day. Well, especially now that we've gone through all the, with COVID, we're into the good stuff now. So I better, I better, she'll drink it, she'll drink it all on her own. So I got one question for you before we go. So with with the Amazon series, and then you're still writing books, if they were to ever pick up the next books, do you ever worry like a situation like George R. R. Marin where, you know, what's that? We, we go keep going. Oh, yeah, where, you know, he never really got to finish his books because the production of the, you know, the TV series got out ahead of it where he got forced to essentially give him an arc and say, hey, you know, here's the rest of it. You got to fill in the details where he never really got to finish his masterpiece due to TV. Yeah. Were you ever worry about that type of situation? That they'd write a different story than you wrote, Jack. 
so that doesn't keep me up at night. That's uh, that, that that falls into the category of a very very good problem to have. Uh, and I met uh, yeah I met George R. R. Martin um, a couple of years ago at Thriller Fest in New York, and he seemed to be okay with it. Uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's had a good run. He's had a great run. Hopefully, he does write that last one. But uh, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he's doing just fine. So once again, that falls into the good problem to have. I would, uh, you know, now that I think about it, I would love it to be in that situation one day. That would be incredible. I'll take it. Good yeah, answer. That's good. that's good. Well, look, Jack, I don't want to keep you. I appreciate your time. Eric and I have had a great time talking to you. And uh, we would love to have you back in the future at some point and, and talk about. So one of the things, part of the show that we're, we're planning on is to do kind of panels of very different people talking about similar subjects, maybe outside of the realm of what you what you're doing right now, but your opinion on maybe topics of, uh, of topical concern, where it's a news story or something that's outside of maybe your comfort zone or maybe uh, somebody that's a differing opinion. We'd love to have you back on at some point in the future to talk about something like that or for book number four, of course. Let's do it. Let's do it. You have my number. So uh, yeah, we'll do it. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been, uh, been a pleasure. It made me promise. So Mikey and Sam made me say, uh, I know what you're going to say now. If you can get away, on the 28th, <laughs> we will do a book signing that you will not believe at the Red Taiwan Gym for the Murph, the 15th anniversary oh, Red Wings. Um, yeah. uh, and we're going to have everybody here and everybody from uh, your friends uh, to people that you've worked with and everybody in between. I promise there won't be any fights, no drama <laughs> of all the team guys. There will be drinking. Well, shit, I can't really honestly promise, but I could, I could say there probably won't be. And uh, it would be a hell of a lot of fun. So oh. I'll leave you with that. I'm no more. Yep. I'll put it out there. Awesome. No, I'd love to do that. I remember the uh, the first time I did Murph back in um, Baghdad in 2006 was the first time I did it. And with with Body Armor and uh, working for a, uh, another government agency at the time, detailed over there. And we had this awesome little little separate part of the, the base. And uh, that was the first time that I did that workout. Um, so, yeah, I always think about think about that one uh, these days. Yeah. <laughs> Might need my own little little mini workout before I head out there to see you guys because uh, yeah, everybody that you guys are connected with are, are freaking monsters, animals. Concern. So. This is a common concern, Jack. You can come there, hang out, drink the whiskey, and sign the books. You do not need to do the Murph because I've had. Oh, I could not. Then, I, then everybody would have something else to make fun of me for. So no, they uh, won't make fun of you. There, there's a lot of them. Most of most of the guys are not do not want to do the Murph. So just, <laughs> they, they want to be there to support, but they do totally. not want to do it. So. No, that sounds so great, so great. So if we don't do it this year, then we'll make a point of doing it. Uh, if doing it next year, if it doesn't work out this year for some reason. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Jack. We truly appreciate it. It's a big deal. And like I said, we know how busy you are and what you got going on. And we are uh, we're very happy to have you on and have so much time. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. I'm sure they did. We enjoyed having you on. And man, uh, you have a very bright future ahead with all this stuff. And I'm excited to see where it goes. To finish the third book, read the fourth book, and of course, watch the series that are coming. That's coming extremely. Do you know? Do you have a timeline? Will it be in 2021? I think 2021, but I'm, I don't ask too many questions. I'm kind of like just so happy to be here. I don't want to be that pain. That's like, when is it coming out? Are we, so I'm just uh, just happy to be here. But I think uh, I th I'm guessing 2021, but uh, who knows? Well, life's well, the world is a weird, weird place right now. So yeah. you would have to assume 2021, but who the hell knows? So yeah. I, I hope so. Fingers crossed for you that Thank you. when it comes out and it's a huge hit, I'm sure it will be. The book Terminalist is fantastic. And I've told everybody and their mother, please check out Terminalist. 
and go through the three books because you won't be disappointed. Even if you don't know anything about any of this world that we've talked about, it's very entertaining, it's action-packed, and you do a great job of engaging the reader, whether they're somebody that's not part of the world, has no experience, or somebody, even a lot of the operators that I know have really enjoyed it and felt like it's uh, like it's realistic, even though it's obviously fiction, but it's realistic in the sense that they feel like it's uh, like they're, you know, in it with you. And I think that's an important, important point where very, very few authors out there would somebody who's in your shoes that has lived your life say, wow, that felt really real and also entertaining at the same time, right? Yeah, that's the highest compliment that, uh, that I can get. So, um, yeah, that means a lot when those guys say things like that. So, yeah. pretty cool. Hell yeah, Jack. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. We really thank you guys. Yeah, you guys asked great questions. You guys asked me a lot of things I've never been asked before. So, uh, so well done. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks Good. for the time. So, so now that sets a high bar. Next time we come on, we'll ask you all kinds of really weird questions. Yeah, just random stuff. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Can't wait. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jack. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. So that is it for today, Eric. We went a little longer than expected, but uh, we had a lot of fun. We had a great time. And uh, oh, who is the new athlete? Very important question. Thank you for asking that. So we did not have him on tonight, unfortunately. We planned to have him on. He wasn't able to make it on tonight. He had some personal issues that prevented him. He will be on next week. And maybe we'll have a little more time with him, actually. Next week's show is going to be a panel show. We, we talked a little bit with Jack for a moment there. We're having some very interesting people on next week. Uh, Carl Lenore, who was the one who brought me into the fitness and bodybuilding world. We had, uh, I had really, honestly, he was the one who gave me the shot in the very first place about 13, 14 years ago and gave me a chance to become uh, who you know today. If it wasn't for Carl Lenore, he wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. We have Sean Rosario, Gold Squadron SEAL Team 6 member, uh, combat veteran. I think he did 16 combat tours of duty, many. Uh, medals for combat valor uh, which, uh he doesn't really talk about much but uh very he's a very quiet guy very he's that. not he doesn't talk about that kind of stuff and you know they, somebody asked me the other day they're like hey that was it wasn't you but we were maybe we were there where they're saying like Deshaun, you and sean talk about a lot of the subject matter that, that i told you i talked with with uh we might mentioned about talking about don rosso about the truth is no and he doesn't mention stuff like that he doesn't talk about you know very little about because uh, he's done i think i would say a thousand you know, missions, combat missions, and you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of combat missions. And he doesn't talk about uh, any of that stuff. And uh, he just kind of keeps it quiet. And I don't really ask him either. And I don't know why I don't ask him, but I don't. I've asked him a few times about a few things, but it was also, again, like, you know, it's hard to put yourself in your shoes and what they go through. And I, you know, it's kind of one of those things is like, I feel sometimes a little disrespectful asking him some of the questions. You know, like, yeah. do you want to dig that up? And well, for some of that stuff, you would just want to leave behind. Well, you know what? Me too. And you know what? When he's on the show, I'll do those things. Because fuck, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do those things. So, But you're right. I don't, right, I don't Rosie, You know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, you get, get ready, buddy. So uh, Rosie, uh, Sean Rosario, he's going to be on next week with uh, Carl Lenore. Carl will be very – he'll probably be the one asking Yeah, Carl will be the one questions. asking questions. Yeah. And then uh, we have uh, potentially Jason Ho come back for our first – uh, round table. I haven't, I honestly, I should have contacted him already, but I haven't yet, but I'm hoping Jason will be back on to talk with the, the other guys and us about the world. Basically, we're going to talk about the topics that are going on with the world and uh, go over um, basically conversation about a bunch of topical stuff. So should be one of our first, hopefully we'll do my, our plan anyways, three new interesting guests. And then one, you know, kind of like topic uh, where you have a bunch of topics where you have a bunch of 
interesting people with maybe different opinions talking about a lot of the stuff. So that's what we're looking forward to. Next week is that. We're also going to have on Sam and Mikey uh, Soros, who, who put our, are putting on the Murph, which uh, I mentioned uh, to uh, Mikey and Sam are great, great people who own Forge, which is an awesome clothing brand. If you haven't checked out Forge yet, you should go check it out. Uh, Mikey and Sam are also running in the owners of the Murph, which everybody's heard of Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Whether you know it or not, they're going to tell you all the details about the Murph, why people do it, why Michael Murphy is such an important figure for the SEAL team community, also for America at large. And uh, those guys will come on next week for a little while before all the topics uh, come on. And maybe we'll have one of those guys on too. Who knows? So answer your question. You'll get the announcement next week. You do know it's a male, and that's about it. Yes. For a new athlete. <laughs> that is it. So, Aaron, what do you think about the special at Arizona? That's Arizona. That was AZ Horzohola. Horchata flavor. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Nobody was suggesting it since we saw Texas. Oh. Oh, you know what? So this is kind of an experiment, right? Texas is the number one state for uh, for Red Count One. We sell more products in Texas than anywhere else in the entire world. And, and so we're giving it a shot, focusing on the Lone Star State, who are very proud of, of being from Texas. And for me, spending a large part of my adult life after leaving New Orleans, Louisiana, and being in Texas, I can understand why they do. They're very proud people. They love America. And uh, people in Texas are very proud to be from Texas. So we're giving it a shot and making a Lone Star uh, Texas flavor Total War for really, it was for Academy, which yeah, is. Yeah, it's uh, really in conjunction with Academy Sports, yes. who's one of our uh, really good retail partners. So it's one of those things where it started off in conjunction with them, but obviously we wanted to also bring it to a broader audience yes. through the website. Obviously, with COVID, some of the store locations aren't open yet. Um, so again, yeah, it's really, it's, it's, our, it's our biggest customer base. Yeah. So you guys in Texas, if you don't go to Academy and purchase it, which is not on the shelves quite yet, it will be very soon. You can buy it at redcoin.com and that's it. It's either Academy in the stores or at redcoin.com. We are the number one sports supplement uh, brand in Academy. I think they have 250 locations yeah, or so. 240, yeah, uh, they're, I think they're number two underneath Dick's, but in Texas, they're number one all day long. So if you want to go check out Redcon 1, Texas, Lone Star State, Total War. Go to the site right now at redcon1.com. If you want to get this hoodie for free, you go to the site and spend $50 from now until Sunday night at midnight and get this hoodie for free. It's the only place you can get it. It will not be available anywhere else. So essentially, if you buy the Total War Texas bundle, this is free. Shit, you're right. Jesus. I can do math. Don't don't tell me. That's, that's a lot of free <laughs> shit, man. Oh, I'm almost not comfortable with that. Should we change it? We're going to go with yeah, that? We'll, we'll roll with it. All right. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to the show tonight. We will be back Thursday night, next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for the next show for our first panel discussion. I promise you there's going to be action-packed. It's going to be fun, exciting, and educational. So. <laughs> oh, Johnny, what the fuck, man? Jesus Christ. All right, go. It's new studio. Go on, Johnny. Go. Go. Let's do it.